People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to this week's Greenwash with me and Don Nicholson at the Hill. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Our number is 2057 for any feedback and we've been getting plenty of those or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Now it's been nearly what done a couple of weeks since the Three parties have sort of sorted out their and out their differences and hopefully are going to lead us out of this nonsense. And Don and I, we thought it was time for a reality check on what we think about the coalition agreement. And uh, maybe we might just be differing in a view in our views, Don, from some of the ones who've come before us. Well, reality check radios had plenty of commentary on the um on the output of the coalition agreements and whether uh, uh, different people have different views. Uh, Most people are pretty comfortable about uh, how things have played out. But when you look at the um, agriculture, primary industry uh, sort of sector, you know, I'm I'm not so bullish. And uh, so today we've got Owen Jennings back with us. Now, Owen was on the panel the day after the election we had with the ex-Feds presidents. Um, and he's also been on uh, on the show on his own accord with um, the Methane Science Accord, actually, uh, the group that he and others have set up. And, of course, Owen's a former Federated Farmers president, uh, farmer, actually, from the West Coast originally, and and an ACT Party um, MP as well. So Owen's well-versed in things politic and Owen, it's great to have you back on the show. Uh, We're going to go and uh, break into this coalition agreement uh, document a bit and look specifically at the primary sector. Welcome back. Um, What's your first impressions of of the agreements that you have read? Well, yeah, it's good to be back with you guys and um, you're doing a great job, uh, you know, reaching out particularly to the rural community, but even wider. And that's really important because the the, the weight of um, news and information going out has been uh, heavily slanted in favour of uh, people uh, who haven't got a, a particularly useful view for the rural community. 
So um, it's um, really interesting, I think, because um, uh, the initial reaction, I think, was was one of relief. We've got rid of the worst government we've ever had. Yeah. Um, we've got people making positive noises about sensible change, and I think everybody went, wow, thank goodness. Uh, it was when we got into the detail and looked particularly closely at what was being proposed in the coalition arrangements for uh, farming in rural New Zealand that most of us realised that it, it, it was kind of once over lightly, but particularly around methane, you know, the, it, there's just too much um, focus on on uh, mitigation and, and so-called... Um, you know, scientific and technical breakthroughs that are supposed to be coming, that uh, and and not enough focus on 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 you know what the real problem is. I mean, Jasper and Don, my problem all along with this situation has been this: when the problem first started emerging, mm. our farm leadership jumped in at the level of saying, "Well, if we're going to pay taxes, we want to. We don't want to pay this, and we don't want to pay that." Um, you know, we need to adjust the targets we need. Nobody stopped and said, hey, is there a problem? What yeah. is the nature of this problem? And what's New Zealand's contribution to this problem? Now, I've, I've had a look at, at what um, uh, Dave Frame, Professor Dave Frame, said to the Farmers Weekly uh, a week or two ago. And, and, you know, if you look deeply into what he's saying, and, and analyse his numbers, not my numbers, not not the methane accords numbers, but his numbers, and he's suggesting that the amount of warming, the actual temperature rise that comes about, in his view, from ruminant methane in New Zealand is four millionths of <laughs> a degree per year. Can you get that? Four hmm. millionths of one degree per year. Mm-hmm. Now, I think he's exaggerating wildly. In fact, if you if you go to uh, and look at, at the work, that's more recent work that's come out from people like Professor David Coe, uh, Fabinski, uh, Sheehan, uh, Happer, Wingarden and Coe, then they're, they're more inclined to believe that it's about 1.19 uh, millionths of a degree per year. Uh, now, I know that's absurd and ludicrous, um, but essentially that's where we're at. We've more or less said the science tells us that there's no problem, that what New Zealand's contribution is is nil. What we're now doing is fighting politics. We're fighting the politics of the green, whose Greens who are yelling that we need to get rid of cows, and, yeah. and sheep and, and ruminants. We're fighting uh, people who think the world's going to end. Well, get a life. Um, the world's got a great self-correcting mechanism. The planet's shown over millions of years that if it encounters a cycle or a problem with rising temperatures or falling temperatures or different conditions, it's got a great self-correcting mechanism. Go back to sleep, guys. It's not a worry. Mm-hmm. 
So, so in, in defence of um, previous farm leaders, of which I was one, uh, Owen, <laughs> I have to say that we didn't have the information that uh, we have now, and, and that's the gall and part from probably 2017 onward, although Co et al., as you talk about, um, did put papers out a bit earlier. That information and, and wasn't... Look, happy, happy to admit that. It, you know, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Um, we're all pretty pretty sharp when it comes to hindsight. Um <laughs> But you know when when the um, yeah system was established, what did they do? They they jumped in at the wrong end. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. We need to go back to basics. Even now, we need to determine what is this warming that has happened. And and you know, um, I, I guess my other argument uh, in all of this is. Um, there's a sort of a, a feeling abroad that, well, we're just a small country. The whole world's, um, you know, chasing this thing and making adjustments and introducing new measures and cutting oil and fossil fuel use, etc. So, so we can't we can't buck the system. We can't fight against that. But I say that's a nonsense. Hmm. We've got a case, a sound case, on behalf of ruminant methane for ruminant methane to be excluded from any of the measures that might be taken, stupid and all as they are, against uh, greenhouse gases. And it's simple. We use CO2 to produce our methane. Fossil fuels don't. Fossil fuels have been under the ground for a few million years, as we know. When they come up and be used, they are adding to something. We are not adding to anything. The, the the pool of methane arising from New Zealand's agriculture is diminishing right now. It's come down since 2005, and it annoys me that the media and scientists continue to go back to 1990 as a base year, ignoring the fact that since 2005, the trend is steady, stable, and slightly falling. So, you know... Um, why don't we make a case out for the fact that we're different? We use CO2 in producing methane. Nobody else has that kind of luxury um, and carve out a, a case for ourselves that puts us in a different uh, situation. Yeah, and it's not just, you know, producers. They are listeners. If you are living in the urban New Zealand, the methane issue is coming for you. They are now demonizing your food scraps which I hope would hopefully be most of them from New Zealand produce, New Zealand grown mm. <coughs> pastures, <coughs> meat, That's vegetables, and so point, on. So it's, it? it's, it's, yeah. it's coming for everything. And no one tells us what success looks like. True. I mean, one of the things that really um, makes me deeply concerned, even upset, is, is the way we're treating the third world. I've spent quite a bit of time in places like India and Nepal, Thailand, parts of Africa, uh, and work with farmers in, you know, for some time in that area. So got a reasonably good grasp of their situation. And they're getting absolutely screwed blind by all of this COP28, 26 or whatever it is this week. Um, and, and they're being thrown a little bit of lolly, most of which ends up in consultants' hands, by the way, not in the hands of, you know, of a, of a mother trying to um, cook in a in a mud hut, you know, with a fire and smoke, 
um, killing herself and her, her kids as a result. Um, you know, we're talking about food. We're talking about life sustenance. And we we feed 5 million people. Uh, uh, we feed 40 million people out of New Zealand with our 5 million population. 40 million people. And we're talking about cutting the that supply by up to 20% with, with you know, sheep and beef and 5% mm. with dairy. Why? Why? Why are we depriving people of the very essence of life, food? It's time we, you know, got serious about some of this stuff and, and stood up for ourselves a lot more strongly as food producers feeding hungry people. Yeah, I can't disagree with that, uh, Owen. Um, I know there's some feeling of the United and the U, sorry, of the people that are talking about the United Nations and the COP28 that it's very simple for the um, for the third or the third world countries, as they're called, to have their hand out as well. Um, and whether that is spent wisely would be my issue. Um, yeah, they do have their hand out. Where does that money go? Uh, was it would be a question that I ask. And I know some of it will hit the ground, but probably not enough of it. The thing that beats me in all of this, and I'm trying to narrow this down to try and take the edge off the debate. It's my view, understanding what you now know, uh, and we've all learned in the last five or six years by reading the papers that laymen can read, um, that methane from any source. Forget about ruminant methane from any source has such a minuscule effect on warming. It is in those millionth of a degree per per year. So why are we bothering to vilify even one sector when we know that methane from any source can never be a problem that is worth talking about in a mixed atmosphere with clouds, uh, with water vapor, with everything else? It just Everything out there now is saying this is the biggest non-problem. So, so a small problem, not a big mm. problem. And yet we've got in these uh, coalition agreements, for instance, the National Enact one says maintain a split gas approach to methane and carbon dioxide through to 2050 and review the methane science targets in 2024 consistency with no additional warming from agricultural methane emissions. And then New Zealand first one is stop the current review of um, the ETS system to restore confidence and certainty to the carbon trading market. I'd just say let that bloody market die. Sorry, I'm, I have to swear there. Progress to work. Progress work to recognise other forms of carbon sequestration, including blue carbon. Incentivise the uptake of emissions reduction mitigation, such as low methane genetics and low methane producing animal no. feed liberalised genetic engineering laws. I mean, all of this stuff says we've got a problem still. It all says we've got a problem and it all says we need to have farmers complying and writing bits of papers and letting letting companies like their processes and their banks tell them they have to do X, Mm. Y, Z when actually they have to do nothing. Nothing. And, you know, as I said, go back to basics. Start at the beginning. The beginning is, is there a problem? Answer is, now we know there isn't a problem. So why are we doing all this stuff? You know, the coalition agreement is a a scattergun approach, isn't it? It just sort of gathers up everybody's little angle and and gives it a push. Um, You know, uh, let's go back to the beginning and start again. Well, uh, clearly, um, I know that 
the ACT Party's view over years. I've followed that and I've followed um, the National Party's view over recent years. New Zealand First wasn't around for the last three years, so we didn't really know what they were on um, you know, on about. But um, <laughs> what gets me is um, David Seymour knows what's uh, – he can read science, he says. He said that recently. He can read uh, papers, and I know he can. Um, Mark Cameron was their um, primary industry spokesman through the last – three years and I feel sorry for Mark because he did a good job from from a ground zero he came in and did a fantastic job uh I thought and but he's been displaced by um you know Andrew Hoggard the former feds president who also knows the stuff that you know and yet they still aren't talking about it Mark Patterson the primary sector uh chap for New Zealand first knows the stuff you know we know he talks with people that we know, but he's not listening. He's not listening. That's that's a real problem, isn't it? Because, you know, if I pick up the phone and ring the chairman of Beef and Lamb or or Dairy NZ, uh, uh, privately over the phone they'll say, yeah, 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 we hear you, we understand what you're saying, uh, and put the phone down and then go to a meeting and say we've got to do something about it. Um, we've got this dichotomy which – just is so irritating, and and um, you know, I cannot see why we couldn't put our feet firmly on the ground and say we now know from the science, not just from one scientific paper, but from the science generally, there is no problem, and then we work out how we present that situation internationally, and that's the part I think that that you know we need we need to um, see a bit of. I uh, better call it intestinal fortitude. Um, <laughs> uh, and and what I'm not seeing is is when I read what Prime Minister Luxon has said over the last twelve months or so, you know he's he made odd comments. It's pretty clear that he 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 drinks this Kool Aid. Um, you know he's in fact in many ways his statements don't differ much from James Shaw's statements. Um, mm. So we, we're going to re have to rely, I think, on, yet again, farmers standing shoulder to shoulder and saying, you know, we do need to revisit the basics before we uh, keep diving down the rabbit hole of mitigation and genetic engineering and whatever it might be and, and all the stuff that the coalition agreement is so, um, you know, voluble on. We, we don't need that. We just need basic science no problem what's the next question yeah how can these are weasel words how can you say that you're going to review the methane science and targets in 2024 for consistency and a few lines down the same page in the same breath you're pretty much saying you're going to incentivize the uptake of emission reductions with low methane genetics this is i don't yeah. even know can we call this lies anymore is this just pacifying the plebes, incentivizing now, saying they'll allow us to uh, allow sequestration of uh, on-farm grass and other things, this vegetation, I would say, which was quite uh, heavily contested previously, that we'll allow you for this shelter belt or we won't allow you. But again, as you said, Owen, the question is wrong. Do we need that? Is mm -hmm. there a problem? What are the trade-offs? And what is this compliance regime going to cost us? And I think therein lie some of the answers because before the problem the compliance regime is ready 
They know how much they're going to get in levies from there. They know how much funding is going to come, it's going to go into research. And therein lies the problem. When you have put the cart before the horse, there's there's no wonder we are heading down this path that we... Well, as, as somebody said, you know, I went looking for the science and I found the money. Mm. Um, you know, uh, there's a good deal of truth in that. I think, I think quite frankly, Beef and Lamb and, and Dairy and Zed saw uh, huge revenue opportunities in this, particularly going back, you know, to Haywakanao. Um, so... That, that's been a factor. But let me just touch back on something you mentioned, Jasper, because I think it's important. The sheer, I'm going to call it evil, the mm. sheer absurdity of ignoring farm vegetation. I mean, what a travesty that was uh, to think that somehow you could tax the outputs and ignore the inputs. The inputs. I mean, that is just, it, it, it just um, tells you that there's some other agenda going on here, and that's that's the problem. We're, we're not dealing with the science. We're, in a way, we're not even dealing with the the politics. We're dealing with um, people Ideology. who are pushing pushing another agenda internationally and even locally here. And um, we 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 just need that exposed. We need people who are prepared to stand up. For goodness sake, I'm I'm old. I'm supposed to be, you know, playing bowls and doing my gardening. I don't know why I'm messing around on the, with this thing, but I just can't let it go because of the sheer um, inconsistency, the sheer hypocrisy, the sheer evil of all of this. Uh, and um, you know, good on you guys for keeping up the pressure, you know, from your perspective with radio. But we've got to get our farm leaders. You know, I want Andrew Hoggart to stand up and say in Parliament, this is a nonsense. We don't need this. We don't need mitigation. We don't need to play with the genetics of our rams and our bulls. We don't need all these um, measures. Um, they're just we, we, unnecessary. We don't. But, I, I, you know, you saw me struggling when I was trying to say sequestration for grass or a bit of uh, planting here and there because I then... Once I start going that that route, then it's almost like me admitting that carbon dioxide is a problem and all of that. And I struggle with that. But if you're going to be measuring warming in the millionth of a degree, well, you can jolly well come and measure every single blade of grass and, you know, bush that is there. Because then there, so it's, I try to avoid, you know, arguing within the allowed narrative. But if you're going to go down and you're going to have oh. portable chambers to measure methane output, well, you can come and measure grass and shrubs and herbs for all that I yeah. care. I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that factor because it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, historically, if we look back at the world's problems, show me a problem and I'll show you a technology solution. That's the way the world works. We, we are challenged by things that confront us. And, and people put their mind to it and come up with with answers. And, and it, it's difficult to deal, on the one hand, with an understanding that says technology will resolve any issues if they are real, uh, and at the same time been saying there isn't a problem to deal with. So it's a kind of a straddling of two kind of separate issues. Um, but let's start clearly and plainly without any nonsense there is no problem created by methane entering the atmosphere end of story 
and and you know it doesn't appear that in these coalition agreements that strength of argument has been put up by the softly softly clauses that I'm reading here now. So clearly you've uh, identified that um, the new prime minister has got some predetermined views um, that he's intransigent on. And these other two parties have tried to tread softly around it. That's what it says to me. And I think the softly, softly approach is is a failing of this coalition agreement. I know to have a coalition of the willing, you actually have to sort of, they say politics is the art of compromise. Sorry, it may be. But for me, uh, principles come over um, over uh, Trump everything. And if you ain't got principles, you got nothing. And so just going back to um, where we talked about sequestration, I agree with Jasper. As soon as you start talking about this, you're done. You're admitting that there's a uh, compliance well, regime look- and you're part of it. And you know what? I've I've never had to bother about it because I've always been pretty down on this from the moment I learned of carbon trading or way back in the 80s when I used to be into forestry. And I thought that was a nonsense because I was trading carbon and everything I produced. Didn't matter what I looked at. I was growing uh, uh, plants and um, and animal proteins and wool, all embedded carbon. Um, didn't think that I needed to do anything different because I was already a very good carbon trader. But it was all in a voluntary situation. Let everything happen in a voluntary situation. If someone wants to trade my come and measure sequestration on my farm and give me the right to you know, sort of say, well, Don, you can voluntarily trade this for my boots. But no one's going to do that. They need to hide behind legislation. And that's the problem. That's why I made that very curse, uh, cursive word. Uh, I said, let it bloody well die. The emissions trading scheme and the carbon trading market is Mm. full of legislative privilege. And the people that are in it that won't let it die, I will guarantee plenty of politicians are trading carbon. Yeah, it's pretty likely because it's potentially... um a gravy train, you know, uh, of, of par excellence. Um, <laughs> another factor in all of this is, you know, the measuring of all this stuff is so imprecise. <laughs> I mean, my very good friend, Neil Henderson, up in the back of Gisborne, yep. who you'll, I'm sure, know, hmm. uh, Neil's a great guy, and um, uh, he's had his farm assessed for its um, carbon levels and um, he's had three different assessments done and and three different results i mean we we're talking we're talking with with you know particularly around carbon trading and and uh, these kind of measurement system we're talking guesswork we're not talking precision and and you know if somebody came to me and said we're going to we're going to reassess your income for last year and going to multiply it by 3 or divide it by three or whatever, I'd be up in arms and so would anybody else. But we can have people arrive on our farm and say, oh, we've, we've decided that, you know, your methane levels are much higher or your total methane output's different or whatever. And we calmly say, well, yeah, okay, how much we pay? I mean, this is the sheer nonsense of all of this. There's just no precision in any of this and that allows people to exploit it. Well, and of course, they're I, I think that just puts me in this back to where I started again, Alan. I'm going to challenge you. That 
by inference is dignifying another compliance regime. Uh, anyone who wants to come and measure this stuff under the under legislative privilege is is endorsing it. So I think the Methane Science Accord needs to, and I'm not going to tell you your business, but I think it needs to think about letting anyone through the farm gate to do anything on an involuntary basis. Mm. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's fair enough, and it's certainly been part of the discussion. And, yes. You know, we, we, what's urgently needed right now is for uh, the Accord to be able to sit down with the key decision makers and, and, and analyse a little bit more closely what they are saying in that coalition agreement and what will be allowed yeah. and what won't be allowed. Um, that's 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 the next phase, and we've written to the prime minister, all of the senior cabinet people, and said, before you finalise these arrangements, we'd like to have some input into them, um, and input from the very basics, from first principles, not from a position where you know a whole lot of presumptions are being made before we start. Yeah, well, that and, and you know that's the respectful thing to do, um, and I accept you've got to be respectful in anything we do. I've um, often had the thought, though, uh, that proponents of misinformation on this stuff should actually have the threat of legal action put against them, including our levy body um, directors. I know that sounds vicious, and I, um, but uh, but you know, twenty years of frustration. Yeah, think about this, Owen. Um, I tried my best for six or so years leading the Fed's climate change or climate variation policy, as I as I called it then. And the day I left, it seemed that, oh, foot's off the throat, let it go. Yeah. And yeah. 14 years on, I'm thinking, what the hell, or 13 years, I'm thinking, well, you know, if things are rotten, things are rotten. How can people ever think it's okay in a director's role to trade the rights of the individual. And the mantra for me was always to maintain authority over property for the member. My issue is, where did these people in our processing companies or our levy bodies or our voluntary organisation like Federated Farmers ever determine that they had a right to make rules and accept rules in collaboration with the government that were okay? To me, that sorry, I'll finish one last sentence. Is this? It's oh, we should have a line in the sand. It is no, not doing it, so that then there's no culpability for the directors of anybody saying we're not doing it. Puts all the liability back on the uh, politicians of the day. Look, it's hard to argue against that. Of course, you're right, and you're far too principled to be a politician <laughs> anyway, Don. Um, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> Well, but look, I mean, it's it's like this. Beef and Lamb have got a, an annual meeting coming up and they've invited their membership to submit um, remits for their annual meeting. What have they done? They've put out a dictate that says remits must be 25 words or less, knowing full well, knowing full well that that will make it extraordinarily difficult for people who want to debate the issues around methane with them to actually frame a remit. Um, you know, I think that's uh, a, a, a blindsided move that's all about cutting democracy, cutting the opportunity out for people who want to participate in a fair and meaningful way. 
And, and I think beef and lamb directors are, um, should be answering on that issue. And if necessary, as you say, they should answer in court because they have been elected there on behalf of the industry. And they don't need to think that they've got so much power and so much control that they can dictate terms um, of democratic process to that extent. Um, unfortunately, and you will recall this, you get elected to a senior position, and it's very, uh, very easy for um, for each of us to think that you know people open car doors for us and and bow and scrape and write and congratulate us and say how good we are. Before you know where you are, your head's three times bigger than it was last week. And you know what we need is is fundamental integrity. We we need people to go back to the basics of serving the people, democratic process, and, and to principles that volunteerism is more effective than regulation, that property rights are inviolate, that, you know, th those fundamental things that, that we know, they need to be revived. They need to be talked of again and, and supported. Um, uh, th th that's my kind of beef. Let's go back to basics and ask yeah. some very straightforward questions. Now, yeah. Owen, and I, this is possibly both of you, this is my ignorance. You've been out of parliament for about 20 years. Don has been out of his uh, role as first president for nearly a decade, just over. Was it the norm for the government to go into joint ventures with private players? And I'm referring to what, uh, you know, Jane mm. Smith your spokesperson, Mithena Kaur, she's been talking about the AgriZero, which is a, in which the government is a 50% shareholder and it's a partnership between government, ANSCO, Fonterra, Rabobank, Ravenstown, Silverfern, Sinlay. Mm. I, I see this as a, an unsettling move. Why is the government going to joint venture with private players who pretty much control, be it co-ops, but who pretty much control the whole primary sector? Are we being completely compromised then? Jasper, it worries me greatly, but ultimately I can kind of say, well, I got a vote. You know, I've, I can change some of that. What I can't change is the banks saying, well, we might not lend you money unless you com comply with this, these new rules or we'll charge you another 2% interest. That I find totally obnoxious. I just can't. Um, think for a moment that there's any integrity in that sort of, um, you know, vicious, pincer-like activity. And, and um, you know, if Silverfern Farms or Fonterra make rules over the top of my head that are idiotic and, and unprincipled, well, I do have a vote. It might mm. be much influence, but I have some. But, but when Australian yes. banks take me to the cleaners, that's another problem. But when there's this sort of policy work going on there, when I look at AgriZero.nz, their website, they are declaring it's big, three big blocks. The one in green says Ag represents 75 of outer rural exports. Then Ag contributes 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Then in blue, 76% of these are methane. This is open admission of what's going on, yeah. what they the views that they subscribe to. And 
how does a change of government affect joint ventures like this? Will the current government, will the new government now simply continue that joint venture? Will they back out of it? I don't know. I mean, you would have expected MPI or others to be doing some research within themselves. But when the public and the private sector combine, well, what happens to the average farmer out in Aspatics? You have no say there. True. And um, ultimately, all of this gets back to the fact that, you know, the reason we formed the accord was to try and bring together groups that are anxious about these issues, that are concerned about them, and try and speak on their behalf. And and, um, we're going to have to um, do a lot of work over the next little while uh, or get to a point where uh, we say non-cooperation, walk away, um, use the combined strength of the of the com- farming community and and the strong support we have throughout the wider rural community. And even, I mean, at the Accord, we've got numerous members in the Accord who are city people who have written to us and said, "We're on your side. We, we're not farmers, but we can see the nonsense going on here and and the lack of integrity." Uh, so we support you. So we, we may well get to the point where it won't be a tractor march. It will be just straight defiance of any imposition of regulation, which is not founded in sound science and practicality. And if it was sound science, I would have expected out here saying 76% of these emissions are methane on the AgriZero website. Then they would spell out, this is what success looks like. We are we are currently, our warming is, say, one millionth or whatever it is, and it is going to, when we are done with this, we are going to be spending these many million. Your product is going to be affected like this, say in volume, or they might even, dare I say it, put up a figure up of how much premium, uh, say, I would get for milk, because my incentive, the the green premium that they would capture for me, this is what you'd be earning, even though you might lose a bit yeah. in production, might cost you more, and this is where we will bring the global temperature down to. They don't mention anything. It's just a foregone conclusion here. Well, something that tells you very clearly what's going on is the last um, AR6 report put out by the IPCC. In the scientific section, they dealt with the issue of GWP star, which was right and proper that they should. Not that I'm a supporter of it. All all GWP um, is nonsense and and, has no place. But they dealt with the issue. What they didn't do was put anything in the uh, AR6 report for public consumption. And that tells me something. It tells me that um, what goes out for public consumption has to be what the Green parties and the and the um, doomsday people are looking for, not what the scientists are proposing. Um, and that's what we're up against. We're up against politicians who won't stand uh, on their, you know, on integrity, who compromise at, at first blush. Um, we're, we're dealing with scientists who who won't stand up to what they believe. We're dealing with farm leaders who will tell you privately, yeah, I'm on your side, but won't do anything publicly. Well, we've got news for them. It's going to have to change, guys. Yep, and, and that's the sort of hard-nosed approach. Uh, yeah, they'll, they'll try and push back. And the, the way that... 
the former Minister for Climate Change pushed back, oh, your markets are demanding this and uh, currently we've got marketers and all that, those main companies saying you've got to do X, Y, Z or else you won't get these, this, this return. Um, it's easy and convenient for them to talk about this stuff. Um, but as Jasper said, putting a dollar value on it's a lot harder for them and um, they've never been cornered enough. In fact, I was at a local meeting a few weeks ago where um, it was exposed to me that one of the other processes was not jumping the hurdles that Fonterra is to supply the same company. Now, whether the price was a differential pricing regime, I don't know, but, um, you know, I, I still Don, hold... Don you, Don, you show me, sorry to interrupt you, but you show me one company, Fonterra, Silverburn Farms, any company exporting New Zealand produce that has said publicly, published, put on a carton, or a, or a bag of meat, the statement that New Zealand has the lowest carbon footprint of any food producer. Show me, show me. Why yeah, didn't like, they? If 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 our consumers are so concerned about it, why weren't they told? This is a load of humbug. This yes. idea that somehow there's a lot of consumers out there waiting for New Zealand to fix its methane problem. What a lot of nonsense! If if it was so important, then our position as the number one uh, nation in the world, food-producing nation in the world, our position would have been extolled and, and made a virtue of long before now. The fact that it isn't tells me that this is just humbug. Well, and on top of all that, um, I, look, I don't disagree. Well said, Owen. Um, <clears throat> what amuses me, and it w winds me up a bit as well, is that the people that are telling us to do stuff, the regulators or the marketers, they tell us that we've got to become more efficient or we've got to, and some of the regulators say, the inference is we've got to produce less. But none of them stop having a pay increase every year or another overseas trip. Uh, they want us to produce more. They just want to enter your checkbook a bit more. There is, it is all about, as my former colleague John Morrison used to say, it's all about taking the unearned increment. And that's mm. where it is. And we've let it happen. Uh, and, and, and it's to our, to my consternation, I haven't been able to push back on it in my entire farming life. I don't think there's been any wins from any farmer politician in the last 50 years that actually counts on this matter, on this front. There's been very few, maybe the rural delivery fee or something way back, but look at that now, rural delivery is almost, almost toast. Um, so, Owen, let's move on. I mean, we could be miserable on this forever, but let's hope uh, the Methane Science Accord um, can have some emphasis that counts uh, because it didn't, we, we've got to get more people on your side. So that's a plea for people to join the Methane Science Accord. We've got to... The stooges amongst farmers, and there's plenty of them who actually take the regulator's side or they've got a pal in a, in a company or a pal in politics, they always um, try to undermine you. We've got to be ready to stand up against those people. We've got to be ready to stand up against the companies of which we can't name here that are profiting out of all this uh, legislation. And, and and you won't know their names. Uh, uh, they're not that they are profiting because they don't front the stuff. They're in behind getting mm. getting the cash. 
So look, let's move on from um, all of this and talk about some other good things that are in the coalition agreement. Uh, then we'll get right back to some bad things again. But the best thing I saw was in the ACT Party um, one, to be to be fair, and it was around, and I have to find it, it was around the RMA, uh, mm. reforming the RMA, and I need to find it, and I haven't got it right here. But uh, they talk about how they are going to reform and revise the RMA and recognize property rights mm. as the premise. And for 30 years, some of us have been on that wavelength. So fantastic. But just think about this, 2007-08, um, I remember under the, sorry, 2008, uh, the new national government then was streamline and simplify was the discussion of the RMA. Uh, there's been a bit of titivation, but you don't hear anyone saying it's been streamlined or simplified. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And look, I've got a builder living next door to me, and I asked him about the RMA, and, and you know, he immediately starts um, venting and, and you know, the anger is, is, is palpable because of the wheels he has to jump through to get where he wants to go to. So I, th I think the thing, Don, is that, National, historically, as a political force, have always been tinkerers. That They've never been really ones to have the stomach for full major reform. And the RMA, if ever anything needs a first principles approach, it's it's a whole area of resource management. Um, the people that think the only way to rule the world is by regulation, the only way to make any changes is by by fiat, by law, uh, are, are fundamentally wrong. They miss out on the on the greater satisfaction and and better outcomes that come from taking people with you by using voluntary instruments and 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 persuasion and and um, and peer pressure. That that's how we change the world. Not not by by being holier than thou and sitting in Wellington and and issuing. Uh, regulations okay. galore. It's interesting. Um, that those builders you talk about in your neighbourhood, um, not only do they have the RMA as as the first yeah. base to cro cross, they actually have the Building Act to, to manage as well. And um, as I used to say, every nail is burdened with bureaucracy. But just going back to the point that is in the Act Agreement, it is replace the Resource Management Act 1991 with new resource management laws premised on the enjoyment of property rights as the guiding principle. And, you know, aside from all the other stuff that's in there, the social policy stuff that's being talked about and, you know, the, the Maori and co-governance stuff and all, to me, that's, the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle clause it, in this it, whole it, document it, for it's me. It's a great. It's a great statement. Um, you know mm. what? I, I've got a feeling that the in the new parliament, the opposition is actually going to be the national party. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think. I agree. I think ACT and New Zealand First want to see some major changes, and the League group may well be the people who who instinctively dislike major change. I hope I'm wrong. I, I want to be wrong, obviously. But the RMA of all of the pieces of legislation and change that uh, are urgently needed 
that's the one that's going to really need to go back to first principles and start again with a clean sheet of paper. Absolutely. It's been a handbrake on New Zealand for a long time, as much as um, the NGOs of the left, extreme left, um, uh, like Greenpeace, uh, they really want it to stay and be enhanced and more of a leg rope on New Zealand society. So interestingly, oh, and another point I want to talk about is, and I'm not sure you're up with it, these freshwater farm plants that the former government decided they were going to have very little consultation just and and they had farmers sort of jumping through hoops to say uh, how they could do it uh, and their local local catchment groups and the like and you know there doesn't appear to be much backing down on this because in the New Zealand first uh, national coalition agreement it talks about uh uh more of the same effectively support farm environment plans administered by regional councils and targeted at a catchment level adopt standardized farm level reporting um the act party talks about them as well and it goes on to talk about significant natural areas and and the like uh act party is a bit more onerous perhaps or a bit more forgiving uh from what i'm about to talk about but Mm -hmm. my point is this any farmer that thinks that they can have voluntary best practice that doesn't lead to some sort of busybody coming inside your farm gate is dreaming. So why is it that we've got these people thinking, oh, but we want voluntary from, well, we don't want freshwater plans mandated, but we'll do voluntary ones. Voluntary ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, they, that's a good question. They, I always they, think, you know, you drive into the Danny Verks, the Gores, the Ashburtons, uh, the Dargavilles, and one of the two biggest buildings in town. One is the Department of Social Welfare. We won't go down that road, but the other is the regional council or the, or the you know, the council bureaucrats who have to be housed because there's so many of them. We've created a huge industry that's often looking for something to do. When the RMA was first written in, what was it, 91 or 93? 91. Yeah. Um, we... we we had to hire a whole lot of people to write plans for district plans and regional plans and water plans and whatever. They wrote the plans and then they sat down and said, well, what do we do now? And part of the malaise that we're suffering at the moment is because we've got too many people, particularly at regional level, with not enough to do, who who are running around looking for, for work and for opportunities, whether it's policing or adding regulations and 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 creating you know mayhem on that front and and you know that's going to take some real guts to deal with and unless there's a minister that's going to be absolutely uh rigid and and uncompromising th- this thing will just carry on because it's such a huge industry it, it's not just wellington it it's it's what's happening out there on the ground in small towns and on factories and farms where these people are, are, are doing their thing. And um, I, I think it would take 10 years of really decisive, principled, but firm management and direction to bring it back under control and, and to restore in the minds of people that you can gain the outcomes you look we can achieve as a community and as a society the things we desire for without having to hound each other and penalise each other 
with rules and regulations and bureaucrats and policing, we can actually achieve the things we want without having to go down that road. And and we've demonstrated it time and time again, probably no better demonstration at a farming level than what's been achieved by the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust. That, that, that is unheralded, unsung, you really see a headline, but huge areas of New Zealand have been are being conserved on a day-by-day basis, fenced, pests are taken out. That just goes on quietly, while down the road, bureaucrats are chasing people, um, hounding them, uh, and often for no good reason. I mean, who decided that our rivers were dirty? Yep. Who, who decided that? A bureaucrat. There's no well, proof. New Zealand's rivers are some of the best in the world. If you do go back to the time, and I'm not sure when it was precisely, the years, but we were actually adjudged on an international basis. We produced the top three of, of the four rivers that in the world which were said to be clean. Now, uh, that is pretty subjective, I know, but we allow ourselves to be dominated by people who can make wild statements without any justification and then start to wield the regulatory stick. Back to first principles. Well, on that basis, nothing more recently exposes that better than the cryptosporidium um, outbreak in what, like um, Queenstown's water supply. The first response was from sheep in the catchment. Uh, thankfully, it's been found to be humans, sheep. But yeah, imagine they 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 just they just throw it out there, you know. Uh, who who someone heads should rule for stuff like this, but they don't. Now, gentlemen, I wonder if I could have a comment from you two on this one uh, in the policy, and this is from National and NZ First: liberalize genetic engineering laws while ensuring strong protections for human health and the environment. The thoughts on this one? Yeah, look, I'm 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 not a I'm neither an expert on on generic engineering and genetic modification. Um, You know, part of me says this is science evolving. This is where, you know, human ingenuity is coming to the fore. Another part of me says, well, do we fully understand what the implications are? You know, uh, are we we opening a a Pandora box which we'll never close? Uh, Be perfectly honest, I do not know. I haven't done enough work on it. Um, I'm sorry, but I, I really can't proffer anything of any value uh, by way of a statement on it. Donna, do you have thoughts on this? Well, I have I have thoughts uh, that are no better than Owen's, really, uh, though, because uh, all I remember was the GE, sorry, the GMO discussion in about 2002. There was a Royal Commission, and it was that New Zealand would allow or would 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 assess each attempt uh, or uh, not attempt that's not the right word any any application to release a gm and gmo in new zealand would be on a case-by-case basis and i'm not aware of um anything getting through the hoop necessarily i i haven't followed it well and when it comes to ge um i'm more concerned about transgenics and than ge but um could be completely wrong and of course i suppose we had something that was engineered uh in the last couple of years called the, the vaccines mm. um what what regime does that fit under i don't know uh but so i'm not learned on this either but one thing i do know and i'm supportive of 
of it is that everything should be rigorously assessed case by case, yeah. proper discussion in society. I mean, this is one that society can have a discussion about yeah. and actually make some issue uh, some rules about again. But it shouldn't, at the same time, uh, think that that links into methane or or climate or something like that. That's um, just got no no relevance to it. But you can see I what quite, these. Yeah, I, in that regard, Don, I quite like the blue green debate um, model, which has never really been tried properly, but has been talked about, where where a process is set up that's not going to be, you know, just happen in a day. It can go on over a period of time where both sides are able to put their case because, you know, what what the whole social media thing has done is given everybody a voice and an opinion and 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 a good thing in some ways, a bad thing in others. That's another story. But you could set up a process where over time an issue like this can be dealt with. People can counter-argument, argument and counter-argument. Um, I think we could do it in a mature kind of way. But, you know, I think back to um, my father was a was a pedigree jersey breeder and he loved his pedigree jerseys. And somebody announced that there's going to be a new thing come in called artificial insemination. My dad was horrified. He thought that was a development which should never happen. It was interfering with nature. And, um, you know, it was going to be the end of, of Jersey breeding and, and um, genetics or whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, you know, it came and, you know, we just accept it today. Now, not a, not a very good parallel, but, but when it comes to science, um, you know, scientists are going to keep coming up with things whether we like it or whether we don't. The mm. issue is the process by which we look at them, judge them, and then if we want to adopt them, yeah, I think that's well yeah. spoken, Owen. Um, uh, the evolution of I ideas, the good bits stand the test of time, the bad bits don't. The thing that I think the people are worried about here is the releasing bad bits that can't get be put back in the bottle. I do see that the New Zealand First uh, Coalition Agreement, Jaspreed, says that liberalised genetic en engineering laws while ensuring strong protections for human health and the environment. So they've widened that remit. It's uh, almost put it into a straitjacket. So very hard for it to go past, get past go, I would imagine. Don, I'll, I'll repeat. Just thinking about the Wuhan laboratory prints. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Don, I'll go back to what I said uh, about halfway through the show, that what worries me is the regulator is now the private sector. We are yes. looking at these coalition agreements. We are all focused here. Now, now, let me give you an example, and I appreciate, Owen, you might you might be aware of it, but just in case. Now, there's this outfit called AgriTech NZ, not to be confused with AgriZero. AgriTech NZ. It was set up a few years ago, and it was established, their website says, as a community to bring together an alliance of agricultural technology associations, all well and good. Now, under this particular incubator, they mentioned that they have an ag agri-tech industry transformation plan, not an agricultural transformation plan, an agri-tech industry transformation plan, because they say there's 700 to 900 agri-tech companies in New Zealand, and they want to uh, gather value. Now, all right. You're not mentioning agriculture, just agri-tech. I'm fine with that. Still, we continue. Then in 2050, uh, not in 2050, in 2018, this particular outfit, they signed 
up to this agreement called Farm 2050, making New Zealand the first country partner with, along with AgriTech New Zealand, signing on the behalf of New Zealand to address the need for sustainable food production. This Farm 2050 agreement that AgriTech signed was signed in San Jose, California during the 2018 Silicon Valley AgriTech Immersion Program. No one knows about it. No one is talking about it. And now when I go to the Farm 2050 website, they say that New Zealand is the first one again, just like being the first country partner, we are being the first country to trial the NTTP, the Nutrient Technology Trialing Platform. And I know I've gone on for a while, but what they are saying is that in across the world, New Zealand has been chosen because New Zealand is very aware of the impact of New Zealand nutrient runoff and leaching into the environment, which has led to regulatory mitigation efforts and acute awareness from the local dairy industry, this problem must be solved. So again, the regulation, where is the government in this? Where is the farmers in this? We've got a group of agri-tech industry bodies that collaborated, formed agri-tech. This went on to California, signed an agreement with Silicon Valley entrepreneurs that, hey, sign us up as the first country partner to farm 2050. Then again, sign us up to the first nutrient technology trialing platform. What is going on? The, the stranglehold of legislation. I no longer look at the parliament anymore for you know this trail of uh, regulation coming. As I am now looking at Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. our co-ops. What are they signing up to? This is where I'm worried about that. Regardless of whether government changes mm -hmm. or not, what first stems question, this first, stream? Yeah, first question for them is: What does sustainable mean? Mm -hmm. well, yeah. You know, and who are they to assert the right to sign us up and, as a country, yeah. as farmers? That right, we are the worst produce, we are the worst doing in the world, worst performing. So we need to be leading this charge. What happens is that we have a good idea, we decide that people should take up our idea, a few voluntarily do so, the rest don't. So we immediately start thinking, well, how can we make them take mm -hmm. up this idea? And we start looking around for devices that we can use to force people to do things. And unfortunately, what happens in our minds here in New Zealand is we don't link to that. We don't see the extension of that, which, you know, has happened historically in the 1930s um, and, and at other times, you know, when, the, when a country has gone down the road of saying, we've got a great idea you're going to adhere to that. You're going to buckle under and sign up to that whether you like it or not. Um, and and it always ends in tears. It ends in mm. disaster. Mm. Ultimately, that road of forcing people with the weight of the law and regulation behind you uh, ends in tears. And, and, and we just need to understand that. We need to understand that we as human beings work together on a voluntary basis, far more effectively and, and far more satisfyingly on a voluntary basis than we do under the pressure of the law and being policed. Yeah, well, well said, um, Owen. Um, and just lastly, on that front, Jasper, what do you think the aspiration, aside from um, some people getting wealthy out of this, this data aggregation, what do you think the end game is with it? Uh, in Farm 2050, aggregation of data is the big game in town, isn't it? 
Yeah, big data. And I'll put my cynical hat on, not that I ever took it off, John. But, you know, you had talking about 700 to 900 companies who would all be rubbing their hands in glee that, hey, there is a great data mining uh, opportunity here, which is going to lead to revenue somewhere. So these so-called, I don't know, they were voluntary at some time, I would say, the agriculture technology companies that came together under this banner. But they have no right to sign up New Zealand to Farm 2050 because each time you sign that, you go off to San Jose, mm-hmm. California to sign up uh, primary industries uh, to this and start this nutrient trialing platform. And they say they are currently doing maize and grapes because wine and maize as uh, cattle feed is big. How many farmers know you are doing this? Mm. And this lot, regardless of what government comes in or doesn't, they have their, I'd say they have their future planned on. They have, they know exactly mm. how much revenue they're getting, what levies they're going to be getting, what sort of data they need. And data is data is gold. Data is what this is about. Yeah. The one who has your data controls you, don't they? Power always gravitates to the centre. It, it does it in government, it does it in the private sector, it does it in companies, it does it in communities. The power will always head toward the centre. Our role, your role and my role, and the people that think like us, is to fight against that. We constantly have to push back against centralization of power. Um, it's as simple as that. It doesn't matter whether it's the RMA, whether it's methane, or, or whether it's some social issue. Um, eventually, for power to reside amongst the people, which is the essence of democracy, there has to be a struggle, a no, never-ending struggle, a never-ending demand on each one of us to push back against the centralization of power. Yep, 100%, Owen. Um, fantastic. Uh, good way to end the show uh, with a statement as, as palpable, powerful as that. And so buckle up, listeners. We've had Owen Jennings here for an hour, and we thank him for that. Owen's always got great insight into the, to the stuff around uh, New Zealand politics and farming especially. And so we thank him again for his contribution. But after the break... We've got another special guest, uh, Francis Menton, who blogs under the name Manhattan Contrarian. Uh, So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and uh, that'll take about an hour. So be ready for for Francis. See you after the break. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. 2057 is a number or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Thank you all for your time this morning. Thank you. Always good to join you guys and um, have a bit of a vent. A lot of fun. (laughs) Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the App Stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome back listeners to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Um, Hope you've had a good week, but uh never sleeps in our place and so 
we do a lot of reading for you that um, hopefully we're going to put you in the direction of um, the gentleman we've got on today and you'll do a lot more reading there. Uh, his name is Francis Menton. He uh, writes a blog called The Manhattan Contrarian. He's a seriously well-qualified um, lawyer uh, from Harvard and Yale and has spent a career in the field of commercial litigation. Now, that's underselling what Francis has done, I know, but um, we're here to talk with Francis about the content of his blog. Uh, we've we've had a bit of a preamble off here with him, and we've got a handle on what he thinks, and I think it could be similar to what Jaspreet and I often talk about, and that is um, the overbearing uh, influences of government and bureaucracy on our lives and so, Francis, welcome to RCR Greenwash. It's a privilege, a privilege for us to have you on. We've you're following a long line of um, overseas uh, commentators for us, and we're very thankful that you've given us some of your time. You obviously live in Manhattan, Greenwich Village. I think I've got that right. Um, I think it can get quite cold there in the winter, uh, probably colder than in Chicago. But um, anyway, how are things your way? Uh, things are terrific. I do. I live in Manhattan. I'm in my home and on the beautiful island of Manhattan today, which is the center of New York City for those who may not uh, know the geography terribly well. And it, it, it can get terribly cold here in the winter. Do you use Celsius or Fahrenheit there? Celsius. Celsius. Well, you'll have to, you'll have to uh, <laughs> give me a second to convert, but the, the record low temperature in New York City is below um, 20, minus 20 Celsius, less than minus, like minus 22 Celsius approximately is the coldest it's ever gotten. But in a typical year, it, it typically will get to around minus 10 Celsius. Mm -hmm. But the average low for a winter day is more like minus three Celsius. So even in the depth of the winter, it's more of the time is above freezing than below. Yeah, well, you need a bit of global warming your way as well. Uh, so do we. <laughs> uh, we're we're forty five degrees south, and uh, but there's no icebergs floating by um, anytime soon. So, look, uh, thanks for that bit of his, uh, geography. But we better get into the nuts and bolts of everything. I mean, you what put us onto you? Um, both of us have been reading your blogs for a long time. And um, you're a prolific writer. Uh, you've been involved in presenting some submissions, as we call them here, to uh, various agencies. Uh, but the one that got us a couple of weeks ago uh, was the crazy climate uh, conference. One, uh, conference you went to. <laughs> and, and you know, part of today's interview is about just giving us a, probably a once-over lightly of many of the aspects of uh, and topics that you you cover. And that was one of them. And what did you find at that conference? Uh, I mean, your blog tells us, but in short, what did you find? Yeah, my, yeah my blog may not tell you everything. Um, so a, a an organization called City and State, which is actually a uh, uh, journalism, I don't, I don't know that they put out a paper newspaper anymore, but it's a website, I guess, that covers New York City and state politics. And they put on a climate conference, which was here in the downtown Manhattan area. <clears throat> so I decided to go. And they had as their speakers 
a collection of uh, one politicians uh, and two people in the renewable energy quote unquote business uh, looking to get in on the handouts, I would say. So the politicians, well, polit- politicians is too is too much. Politicians and bureaucrats. So, so the the heads of several of the city and state agencies who are supposedly conducting this energy transition were there, and several members of the state legislature and the city legislature, which is called the city council, were there speaking. And people who work for various of these energy companies that are either building or hoping to build solar farms or wind turbines and so forth. Also representatives of of some of the utilities, although a notable absence there was um, a representative of the ISO, which is called the Independent System Operator. And, And why that's so notable is that the ISO is the one that's responsible for, let's say, balancing the grid or making sure that the electricity supply is always there to meet the demand. And the funny thing is there's been a huge change over the last 20 years in how electricity supplies. They, they, they supposedly deregulated, but as part of the deregulation, the utilities who deliver electricity to your house and send you the bill don't produce the power anymore, nor are they responsible for balancing supply and demand. So just because somebody from Con Edison, that's my utility that I pay my bill to, who was a very sensible guy and he was there, but they have no responsibility for the critical issue anymore. And the people who do have responsibility for the critical issue weren't there. So everybody who was there was a cheerleader for the great green energy transition that we're about to have. And to a person, they did not know what they were talking about, what the problems were. They were they were totally in la-la land. So that's why I called it the crazy climate conference. <laughs> Yeah, and, and just listeners, just for, for information, uh, crazy climate conference begins with K, K for crazy, K for climate, K for conference. I think you could have um, called it the cult with a K conference as well. Um, well, the, the, the word cult, as as do the climate uh, zealots, <laughs> certainly comes to mind. And I've used that many times, although I haven't started spelling it with a K yet, but maybe I will. But it's interesting. Yeah, you know, I've been involved in the energy sector as well, and um, it it intrigues me how people believe that electrifying everything um, is going to be the savior. Uh, as as if New York, for instance, had a a major power outage. Uh, you've just talked about the temperatures. Whether it would be in a hot summer day or a cold winter's day, it won't be pleasant. Uh, aside from the fact that uh, your economy will shut down pretty quickly. Um, so why why are we building this this lack of um, resiliency? I, I don't like using that word, but it's a buzzword um, in the system. It it is putting you in a serious seriously vulnerable position. I would suggest a bit like we're going to do to ourselves here. Well, I would agree with that. However, we're we're nowhere yet. So if the question is, have we had any blackouts yet? The answer is. Uh, We've had blackouts, but not not because of the conversion to wind and solar, nor have we had blackouts in the last few years as they've gotten started with this. But they're barely started. So New York decided to go to jump feet first 
in, into the plunge pool of the, of the energy transition with an act that was passed by the state legislature in 2019. And it sets a bunch of goals for uh, converting to renewable, quote unquote, power. Uh, the first of those goals is 2030. So we're we're closing in on the halfway point to there. But the, the goal doesn't come for another six years. And uh, in terms of getting there, well, to get there, according to them, you have to close the fossil fuel generation, which in New York is almost entirely natural gas. And you have to replace it with something. And now the first thing they did was they came out with a scoping plan that's going to tell us how to do this. And that scoping plan took them a couple of years and was only actually finalized in December of 2022. So it's less than a year ago that we actually have a supposedly a roadmap to tell us how to get there. The roadmap is 700 pages long of, of, of gibberish. And, and um, so I don't know how many of my blog posts you've read about it, but it's 700 pages that make no sense whatsoever. They, they have no idea what they're doing. They're, they're completely incompetent. So they're going to close natural ga gas generation that operates all the time and it operates when the customers need the, pow the power and the electricity. And they're going to replace it with wind turbines and uh, solar panels. Well, they have plans for making enormous numbers of wind turbines and solar panels, but with nameplate capacity approximately the same as the natural gas plants they're closing. The natural gas plants work 80 or 90% of the time. And by the way, you can pick the 10%. They don't work because that's because you're doing maintenance or something like that. Mm -hmm. The wind and solar work approximately 25 to 35% of the time, and you don't get to pick when. So they're replacing reliable generation from natural gas with wind and solar that won't produce nearly as much power and not a lot of the time. How is this going to work? Oh, then they talk about, well, we'll have, we'll, we'll have some storage to back it up so that that can work uh, the rest of the time. Well, they're not building enough wind and solar to fill the storage, let alone they don't even know the correct units to quote storage capacity. And they quoted in megawatts. It should be megawatt hours, hours to know how much storage you need. The whole 700 page scoping plan doesn't even consider the, the megawatt hour issue. They have no concept of how much it's going to cost. They have no concept. If you, if you do some simple arithmetic on this, you figure out that wind and solar, they have a daily cycle, but they also have a yearly cycle and even a multi-yearly cycle. And so you need wind and solar. If you, you need storage to back up wind and solar that can be put in storage and used a year later or two years or five years like water in a reservoir, that doesn't even exist. No such thing exists. So and meanwhile, they're closing the natural gas plants. Now, we have not had a blackout yet because they've only barely begun with this. And I don't know what's going to happen. Are they, are they going to back off at some point in the later 2020s when it becomes clear this is ridiculous? Or are they going to keep for, uh, plowing forward until our whole economy closes down? I have no idea.
Yeah, amazing, isn't it? This seems to be a cut, copy, paste the world over. Just like you, you know, you're mentioning there, New Zealand. We are part of this UK-registered charity called the Wellbeing Alliance. And in 2018, we declared when the last government, and I'm sorry, Jacinda is now in your shows, Francis, but yeah, <laughs> keep keep her there. So her government uh, put a complete block on any more offshore oil drilling, and we began what is colloquially called as out here, the just transitions. It's a buzzword straight out of the World Economic Forum. We set up a just transitions unit. Uh, our roadmap was not quite as big as yours, the 700 pages, but they set up 11 different transformation pathways, whatever. It's it's word salads. And I thought I understand English. And where Don and I live, so we are in Southland. They've now recently declared us that we are going to be the wind energy capital of New Zealand. They have identified over 50 spots on this coast, which they say are absolutely perfect for wind turbines and so on. And they want us to, you know, just try. I sometimes wonder these words, just, is it, you know, is it being used as the opposite of unjust or does it mean just, you better do it or else. But we're doing <laughs> the exact same thing to ourselves. Are, are the wind turbines onshore or offshore? Uh, but, that'd be onshore. Onshore on for now, but there's an offshore option being, being explored in Taranaki, which is in the North Island and a major volcanic area. And there was a lot of uh, fracking and drilling and everything available, but it's it's all been shut down. But uh, tell me, Francis, how does a litigation lawyer, 40 years, transform into this blogger? And you know, you say that you are just, I'm reading out the blurb from your blog. It says you you are combating elite Manhattan political (laughs) ideologies and climate change, the purpose of government and the basic principles of economics. How does a a litigation lawyer start doing that. And your output has been prolific, listeners, 1,000-plus articles on Manhattan Contrarian. Yeah, but it's not prolific enough. I'll tell you, I've never written a book. And I really <laughs> should write a book. There's a book I there. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, there's, there is plenty of books. Yeah, 1,200. I, yeah. I don't nearly have time to write a book. So I, somehow I have to figure out how to write a book. Uh, more recently, I've been spending time with my grandchildren. So my, my blog is maybe a uh, 30% of time job. But yeah. but um, litigation lawyer, I don't know what you think of as litigation lawyer because because the the contact you might have or know of of high-end litigation lawyers tends to be these tort guys who sue for uh, uh, asbestos, thousands of people with asbestos or exposure to herbicides or something like that, or or suits against, uh, like shareholder suits against big companies. And I was more involved in basic contract disputes between companies, mm. where I could be either the plaintiff or the defendant, and the, the companies would say under, but the most typical contract involved would be a contract to buy or sell a company. Right. So you bought or sold a company, and maybe it didn't work out quite as you hoped. And uh, or there will be payments, sometimes big payments, hundreds of millions of dollars payable over several years, depending on earnings. Oh, somebody's manipulating the earnings. So they're claiming they don't owe the money when they really do. Like that kind of thing is, right. is, so this is what I worked on. But it's 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 very much about persuasive writing. That's that's what the job is mostly about. Mm hmm. 
Uh, well, I mean, we have uh, lawyers in New Zealand, Francis, who've organized themselves and beca- have become set up with an outfit called Lawyers for Climate Justice, who keep attacking <laughs> the government. So you could have actually gone down that lucrative pathway, even. Well, well, yes, there's there's becoming a lot of uh, lawsuits about mm. climate stuff. And I actually, here in my retirement, I dabble in some of that on what we call a pro bono basis. In other words, I don't get paid anymore. But uh, I, I do dabble in some of these lawsuits. Some, some of these lawsuits just couldn't be crazier. My, I mean, my favorite ones are they'll round up a group of 10 or 20 kids or teenagers, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, yep. who claim that they have a constitutional right to a healthy climate. Oh, yeah. And, and that that is being undermined by the fossil fuel companies. Now, some of these lawsuits, they have sued the major um, oil and gas companies claiming they're responsible for destroying the climate of the planet. Others, I mean, there, there, there are lawsuits out there which seek an injunction against the United States of America to require it to end the use of fossil fuels in order to save the climate. Um, and, and there are hundreds of these lawsuits. Oh, by the way, in some of the state, you know, here in the United States, we have the federal government in 50 states. The states have big responsibilities for government, and they all have their own constitutions and their own legislatures and governors. And some of them, more than one or two, have provisions in the Constitution saying something like, in in the list of your rights, one of your rights is a right to a clean and healthy climate. So, So this is just an invitation for whatever you could think of in these lawsuits. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, we noted that you um, were involved in a case between uh, the Concerned Household Electricity Consumers Councils versus the EPA. And a quick read of that suggests to me that, uh, that well, there's a term standing you came up with in that, um, in well, that blog. Well, I didn't come up with it, but... No, no, no <laughs> but there is a term. Yeah, yeah, okay. And it <laughs> clear, I mean, it clearly uh, states that... Um, uh, well, the way I read it, there is no standing for uh, anyone to defend yourself against the EPA. The EPA is all powerful. Is that is that how it should be read? Well, no. No. Um, okay. No. Now, uh, I, I will not be knowledgeable about the law of New Zealand at all in this area, or or uh, other countries other than the United States. But in the United States Constitution, Mm. uh, which is not a long document, there there are uh, there's a Article three defines the court system and what its powers and limits are. And it says that the uh, court system can have jurisdiction over the following cases and controversies. And that's the operative term cases and controversies. So that has been interpreted by the federal courts and the Supreme Court as meaning that the federal courts do not give what are called advisory opinions. Like you you cannot bring a lawsuit in the United States for uh, to to say, here's the statute. We don't know what it means. Court, please tell us what it means. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, That would be called an advisory opinion. So the courts don't do it. 
Actually, some of the state courts do do it, but the federal courts don't. So, and so how do you draw the line? The federal courts draw the line by saying you can't bring a lawsuit unless you have a concrete, definite injury that you can claim uh, is the basis for your lawsuit. That gives, if you have a concrete injury as a plaintiff, you can say, I have a case or a controversy. Now, the funny thing is that the environmentalists have totally figured out how to game this. And for, for example, somebody who owns a piece of property on the seacoast, and, and this is a, an example of a precedent that was cited and argued over in our case in the D.C. Circuit. It's not our case. It's, a pre, it's one that came before us. A guy owned a piece of property on the seacoast, and he says, well, fossil fuels are causing global warming. Global warming is melting ice. Ice I, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm afraid it will cause the sea level to rise. I'm afraid it will make storms more dangerous for me. That's my harm. That's my standing. No problem. You got it. Okay. <laughs> now, we come, <laughs> we come in and say, uh, we're challenging an EPA uh, uh, finding, which mm. which is used as the basis for closing fossil fuel power plants and for enforcing a transition to wind and solar energy. And we're saying, well, those things don't work and won't work. Our electricity prices are going to go up. To which the answer was, that connection isn't close enough for us to understand that you don't have standing. So, if, so see if you can understand why the environmentalist who's afraid that 100 years from now the sea level rise is going to harm his coastal property versus us with our electricity bills going up. Which one sounds like better standing to you? Well, the D.C. <laughs> Circuit, I mean, this is a very easy issue to politicize. The D.C. Circuit threw us out on that ground. Now, to be honest, we can't say, you know, here's the $50 that I paid, but but neither can the environmentalists. So it's it's somewhat of a judgment call, but the deck is definitely stacked in favor of environmental crazies and against environmental sanists. Mm. Very definitely. I, I noticed you had um, William Happer and Richard Lindzen as uh, part of your of the team um, in, the, oh, in, Win, in Van Wingarden. And we have um, regularly quoted those guys, uh, their output on our show. Uh, we wish New Zealanders would listen to these uh, people and people like yourself uh, because we're falling into the same hole. Of course, you've got Gavin Newsom on the uh, on the west coast of America. He's, he's going to fix everything um, uh, for everybody. Uh, how does that sit? <laughs> Well, that's that's government's role is to is to eliminate all downside risk in life and create a, a society of perfect fairness and justice where nobody has to worry about anything. Uh, in in the case of Happer and Lindzen, uh, who, by the way, I, I know pretty well, um, uh, they're not a party in our case, but it, at, at one phase of it, they submitted an what's called an amicus brief. Uh, uh, saying why they thought we were right on the science that that there that um, increased greenhouse gases are not dangerous and not and are not a crisis. Um, 
Now, it turns out once we got zapped on standing, their scientific input became not very critical to that issue at all. So uh, at that point, they dropped out. Now, Haber and Lindzen, Haber is the chairman of something called the CO2 Coalition. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. You have. Absolutely. And, and so the CO2 Coalition, and they recruited me to join that. It has about between 100 and 200 members, I would say, most of them scientists. I'm one of the few non-scientists, although I, you know, I kind of uh, dabble in. Uh, oh, you, you in most definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, I, uh, we, as Don told you, we've just had an election. I mean, we had the election in October, but it's taken a few weeks for this three-way coalition to sort out their differences and come mm -hmm. together. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I usually am. But everyone seems to think that this is perfect. We've got the right here. The media is raging. It's We've got the far right here and so on. <laughs> but uh, I was uh, reading your blog on about Trump and how, you know, when Trump came, there was a lot of hope, especially in the scientific community, the same scientific community I might add, about the fact that things might be unraveled. The nonsense might be unraveled. And you say, that didn't happen. The Trump administration was mostly a disappointment. They yep. did take on a few regulatory matters, but they never tackled what you call the endangerment finding, labeling carbon dioxide a danger to human health. And there was no meaningful pushback against activist bureaucracies, funding for climate change. And that's exactly what Don and I worry about. You can change a government, but the bureaucrats, the NGOs, the funding for the universities and so on, that doesn't change, does it? How has how have things gone for the U.S. You know, post uh, Trump, and has anything changed at all? Well, Trump famously promised over and over to drain mm. the swamp. Mm. I, I don't mean to be too critical of him on mm. this yep. because he did a number of things. He did a number of positive things. I mean, he's also a crazy man, which is which is a problem. But he did a number of positive things. But on the draining the swamp issue, he barely got started. Now, in order to like defund the left, that could be done in the United States with big enough majorities in Congress. But it can't be done with a majority in the House of Representatives of 10 or 5 or 15 seats and a majority in the Senate of one or two or three seats. It really requires a majority in the Senate of 10 seats and, and a majority in the House of Representatives of 50 seats. Well, why is that? Con consider, consider this climate energy issue. <clears throat> and again, I don't know the politics in New Zealand on this, but one of the encouraging things is that the Republican Party has mostly come around to climate skepticism. Mm -hmm. But mostly does not mean entirely. And just to give you an example, the, the, well, currently the Democrats hold a one-seat majority in the Senate, 51-49. But sometimes you can peel one of those guys off. But can you hold the Republicans together? Oh, who is the biggest weasel in the whole Senate on climate and energy issues? Mitt Romney. He was my law school classmate. <laughs> And he's, a, you know, he ran for president in 2012. You probably know. Currently, yeah. he's a senator from Utah. And and he is 
he's just not on board with the Republican program on this issue. And when when everything turns on one or two votes, he, he sinks it. Right? And and uh, and he's got a he's got a couple of others in the Senate like that. Uh, Susan Collins of Maine is one of them. Um, if I thought about it for a minute, I could come up with another one or two. But but when the Senate turns on one or two votes now, how I suppose we got a Republican president, but how are we going to pass a bill to defund a lot of this stuff if we can't get a majority vote in the Senate? And that's where exactly. It is. Yep. And Don, we talk about the same thing, don't we? Nothing changes in the schools, the universities, the same curriculum, the same test labs. Oh, no, it's and, changing. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. It's, uh, Is the, it? the, well, by, by changing, mm. it, it's changing for the worse. I mean, oh. sin, since I was in school, which is, mm. which is now 40 to 50 years ago, the schools were leftist, but there were... First of all, there were non-leftist professors who were left alone and treated with respect. Yes. And leftism meant thinking that bigger government is a good thing or government spending is a good thing, but it didn't mean critical race theory. It didn't mean... Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. It didn't mean toxic gender ideology. It didn't... I mean, it's it's... It's gotten far, far worse than than when I was at school. Mm. So now the funny thing is, um, and I have contacts with student groups at both Yale and Harvard, mm. who are conservative student groups, and they they have not a few members, um, but far from a majority. So there are there are substantial student groups at Yale and Harvard that might be more than 10, but less than 20% of the student population. Um, they're, 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 they're a, they've got a mass, but maybe not a critical mass. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not driven to zero, mm. but they're a clear minority and not like a 45% minority. They're like a 15% minority. So how did the learned uh, academics of of the universities and the professions let this happen so so subversive? It seems like subversion almost, uh, but it's happened over my lifetime and your lifetime, and we've let it happen. How well, you're saying happen? the learned academics let it happen, but I would say the learned academics let it. <laughs> they, they were the leaders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They, they didn't let it happen. They made it happen. They yeah. caused it to happen. And, and why is that? Well, I mean, I have many theories about this, but, mm. but uh, it, at, at the top of the list is that, is that uh, academics don't live in, in, a, in an environment where they see how the competitive economy works. They never learn how the competitive economy works. And, and they think... I, I had some posts about this. You look at Hillary Clinton's speeches about Ooh, yeah. economics. Oh, Joe Biden isn't different, but Hillary Clinton is more explicit that her, in her mind, all wealth comes from government spending. And more government spending means more wealth. More, wealth. more government spending means we help more people. And 
more government spending is in every way a good thing. I mean, it's it, it's it's as simple as that. Hmm. Free market economics. These people have never lived in the real world. They've, They've never lived, in you know, within world. those hallowed walls of universities and so on. And that's that's where they plot and plan. And I think that most of them don't even realize it themselves. They just truly believe it. I've come across some very passionate, shall we say, people who believe in this, that this is what's going to happen. And someone like me is being irresponsible. And you can actually see it in their faces. They truly believe it with every fiber of their being. Yes. I mean, the free market economy is not a directed process. It's not directed by the smartest people to figure out how it's going to happen. It's a trial and error process where everybody gets to try and succeed or fail. And over time, the ones that succeed do well, the ones that fail get wiped out, and those people could start again. I mean, that that's how the process works. The academic thinks they're smarter than that. Right? Mm-hmm. They, 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 they can envision a more just and fair world, and because they're so much smarter, they can they can implement their vision and it has no downsides and that that's just the way they look at the world i think mm. it's, it's interesting one of your quotes in a in a blog, recent blog you talked about reality refuses to cooperate um we've reached peak absurd absurdity Uh-oh. and you know i i think that's uh, exactly where we are oh, peak peak absurdity um we live in the real world uh, but so many people don't i just want to go back though because it intrigues me. You went to university in the 70s. I was leaving school and doing stuff about the same time. Um, so we're all heading to 70 by the sound of it. Um, right. And uh, well, I and, cruised right through that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, so, so look, um, well, you're looking pretty, pretty fresh. Uh, but, but this all happened under our noses. And I still haven't discovered absolutely where the genesis of all this uh, push to have this leftist ideology coming at us uh, was from. Uh, You know, people talk about Marx, people talk about Gramsci, but how the Dickens did it happen post-World War II so easily? Uh, Just, I wish I had an answer to that. I mean, the, the famous quote of... Winston Churchill, and I won't get it quite right, but if you're not a socialist when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not a capitalist when you're older, you have no brain. Yeah. Um, But, and I've discussed this subject with some of my younger colleagues back when I was employed in a big operation where I had a lot of younger colleagues uh, and a lot of them were liberals. And I would say to them, so let me summarize your view of the world, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Your view of the world is, here's poverty, suffering, injustice over here. Here's a lot of rich people with a lot of money over there. All the government has to do is come in, take the money from over there, put it over here, and fix everything. And that's that's all that has to be done. And... A lot of them would say, yeah, that's, that's basically right. But it, now, in order to understand why that doesn't work, I think that takes that takes some real experience in the world. And it takes some, some experience where you're not sheltered from real consequences. 
I think. So I, I think a, a lot of pe- young people, people in college, people at elite colleges have grown up mostly in wealthy families. They haven't had any real consequences. All they know is the money just keeps coming and they have plenty. And why can't the government just use that? to? We, I mean, you can look right here and look at those poor people. They're people who are homeless. Can you goddamn build them a house? Mm. Rent them yeah. an apartment. That's the end of homelessness. And, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you actually have to watch what's going on as a place like New York goes from a $500 million budget for the homeless to a billion, to two billion, to four billion, to five billion. And the number of homeless grows. How could that possibly be? And the same thing has happened in San Francisco and the same thing has happened in Seattle and Los Angeles and Chicago. And Auckland. We are we are this it's the same state of and Auckland. Auckland. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm in my mid-40s, gentlemen, and I'll I'll try to attempt to answer this. I think with my limited experience as compared to you two gents, the last 20, 25 years growing up have been quite relatively easy for most people. I remember when I was younger, or my parents' times when they tell me, you know, yeah, everyone was living in the real world. Academia was just academia. My dad, uh, his parents didn't have a car. He, in fact, lost his parents really young. I think my dad bought his first car in his 30s after he had joined the army, worked for a few years, 10 years or so. And I was relatively young when we had a car in our family. My kids have grown up. My kids, yeah, this is in India. So my dad retired as a lieutenant colonel, Francis. And my kids have never known us not being a two-car household. Uh, academic standards, I also think, have slipped. My parents in India, my my, they have some of my grandfather's uh, letters on both sides. Great English, great Hindi, whatever they were written, well-formed. And I have seen in my lifetime academic standards slip. Slip to the point where kids can come. Had I have a friend who was asking for a few books recently. Her nine-year-old is struggling to read properly. This is a child who goes to a great school in Invercargill. And, you know, why does this happen? Why are we failing our children? And I think all of those things, an easy life, you have phones, instant gratification combined with slipping academic standards and everything. It's all combined to where we are. Children, people don't think these days. They don't, they want to be told how to think. This conference you mentioned, Francis, led by a media house. Like, what is media doing setting up a climate change conference, which is being attended by bureaucrats? It is, they're just too cozy together. Yes, well, that question of why the city and state thing set up this particular conference, I I was scratching my head about that too. uh, I I I think I have I think my best guess on that mm-hmm. is that they they are cultivating sources for um for their articles. They they mm-hmm. want to be see with the collaborating. Get, yep. So they can get the scoops supposedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would call them pretty worthless scoops, but that's but that sort part. of networking, you know, it 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 blurs the boundaries where media should be and where bureaucrats sure. are and who makes the policies. And I see that all too often these days. Literally, there's they tell us to sign declarations of conflicts of interest. And, you know, someone like me in my position, anything over 50 or $100 is it, I need to declare, even if it's someone's paid for a meal for me or something. And that's fine. But you see very mass conflicts of interest on a multi-million dollar scale. No one blinks an eyelid. You mean the president of the United States taking $5 million? 
<laughs> I was hoping you'd come to that. Ukraine and China. <laughs> oh, no, those don't count. <laughs> they just don't. No, that's just no, you but, know, good business. But, but just breed. I I don't know if I can help you with this whole business of why uh, standards are declining and you know the world is yeah. going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, no, I I just think we're failing the next generation. Dawn and I. Uh, I mean, in, on another level, you're in states. Dawn is a born Kiwi, New Zealander, born and brought up here. I migrated about just shy of fifteen years ago. We are very different in our ways, but yet there's so many things on which we think alike. And these people would like us to think out here that unless I'm treated by a doctor of the same race, I might oh, face systematic oh, yes, that's, racism that's in medical in institutions. So I, I don't understand that. That's big in the United States too. This, this is a huge thing. It's, it's become a huge thing, which is, which is um, uh, that the statistics have been collected Mm. And it turns out that black babies have mm -hmm. worse outcomes than yeah. white babies, or for that matter, Asian babies. Uh, and, and, and the next phase of this is that there are fewer black doctors than the black percentage of the population. Oh, but there aren't enough black doctors for the black babies, assuming that that you had to be treated by somebody of the same race. Now, why is it that the black babies have worse health outcomes? Racism? Well, one hypothesis is that the white doctors are racist who are mm. intentionally harming the black babies. That's that strikes me as ridiculous and completely implausible. But that's that is the favorite hypothesis. The, you know, the other hypotheses include that uh, that a higher percentage of the black mothers are taking drugs. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Or, or just uh, don't have their lives together very well or are in, in poverty. They don't see doctors very often. They don't pay attention during the pregnancy to the various issues that can come up and be taken care of. I, I'm not saying any of these things are true. I'm just saying that's where I would look for a hypothesis as opposed to the hypothesis that the, <clears throat> the non-black doctors are racist, which I, and not only just racist, but are intentionally ill-treating the black babies. I think that's ridiculous. But I'm a, that is the preferred narrative. That is the preferred the narrative. And I think this is also the whole dumbing down. Now, if it was up to me, I would look at the statistics of US as a whole, and which shows me that you have 5.9 deaths per thousand infants, childhood deaths, and Cuba only has four. So you are 50% worse off than Cuba as a whole country. And that's what I'd be focusing <laughs> on. And three times worse than Norway. But it seems well, we are Cuba, forced you, to, yeah. You're I mean, telling Cuba me you is, believe the statistics coming out. I mean, of Cuba. I, I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> There's this data there that, again, you know, our Lord and Masters at the World Health Organization declared. I would look at why Norway is just 1.4 deaths, while, you know, U.S. is 5.6 deaths per thousand. That's what I'd be looking at rather than trying to look at everything through an ethnicity-based lens, a race-based lens. Growing up, I mean, you don't get much more multicultural than India and then the Indian Army. Again, I'm a very small minority, the Sikhs in India. We never thought of this thing. The British were in India for nearly 300 years. 
we never had colonialism mentioned in our you know texts other than you would have you know, the, the muslims built the taj mahal the mughal emperors or the british built some of the best hill stations dalhousie and others in india and but we've never had colonialism blamed for anything all our lives now as an expat indian i occasionally see indian media talking about getting back the diamond on uh, the crown of the, the king of england <laughs> and i'm like seriously you're sending a guy to somewhere in space god knows where when you can't even afford to feed your own people what's wrong <laughs> with priorities it's a one messed up world it it's hard to answer that isn't it and that's why um perhaps your blog's called the manhattan contrarian uh, we've got contrarian views here as well and may we may we long have them um just moving on a little bit there's a lot of language that is used by these uh these good people of the ex- of the extreme left <laughs> i i've got to say the extreme left because they keep extreme. saying I, I i'm called the far right so i'm going to call them the far left about the, the extreme hard left, left. About the hard, hard left okay <laughs> uh, but they come up with all these terms and i've been mystified by many of them um and jasper highlighted one earlier collaboration was a term that i first heard um new way collaboration about 2008 but um, we we had a lady on from uh, Tulsa a few weeks ago, Julie, Dr. Julianne Romanello, who talked about the lexicon of of these uh, leftist words, and you know, there's hundreds of the words. I've been intrigued by the diminution of the word word shareholder when it comes to companies, and we now talk about stakeholders as if non-owners have more say in a company than the real shareholders. Is that something that you observe? Um, secondly, I've never quite understood the term not-for-profit or non-profits, and yet people in there seem to be fatting themselves quite well. Um, well, I can treat both of these. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you that uh, the business of commercial litigation is going to give me a lot of insights into these things. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um <clears throat> I'm just I'm mulling over where to start on this. But so here in the United States, the law of corporations and the law of the duties of corporate officers and directors to shareholders or for that matter, stakeholders is a matter of state law, not federal law. And the the federal law has intruded into it somewhat, but not that much. And so it really is a question of almost entirely of state law. Right. Um, now, the state law, y- y- you might find this funny, but you, you can incorporate your corporation in whatever state you want. It doesn't have to be where your headquarters is. Uh, a lot of people, small companies that are never going to have much revenue or do much will generally incorporate where the, in the state where they are but if you're going to be a big company you probably want to incorporate in one of the corporate centers and the, the two big ones are delaware and nevada delaware and nevada just happen to be close to new york and california respectively but they have uh corporate law which first of all because a lot of Big companies have been incorporating there for a long time. Been a lot of litigation. There's been a lot of case law. There's a lot of precedent. So you you 
And, and, and there's a small number of judges. Delaware is a very small state. They have something called the Delaware Chancery Court that, uh, that litigates the corporate cases. There's only three judges there at any given time. You get to know them personally. So, and you get to know what you're going to get. So companies incorporate in Delaware on the East Coast and on Nevada on the, on the West Coast. And they have uh, a well-developed corporate law that uh, the only, the duty of the officers and directors is a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. Now, there are plenty of people out there advocating that this is evil capitalism at work and that we ought to do it differently. And a number of states have fallen for it and have put into their corporate statutes that there are duties to stakeholders. And the states can do that because, again, it's a matter of state law. And we have, I guess, um, uh, see if you can get somebody to reincorporate there. Some states, now, let's, do you know about corporate takeovers, contested corporate takeovers, when you have a public company and somebody goes, publishes an ad in the newspaper to, directed to the shareholders, your stock is trading at $20 a share, I offer you 30, tender your stock to me. The shareholders say, okay, I'll take the 30. A week later, the raider owns 60% of the stock, throws out the board, throws out the mm -hmm. officers. Okay. So uh, that was a substantial part of my commercial litigation practice was dealing with those situations, which always provoke litigation. But one of the things that happens is a, a company which has a lot of business in Pennsylvania and they see this coming, they say, okay, I'm going to reincorporate in Pennsylvania because I have a lot of employees in Pennsylvania. And if these guys take over, they're going to fire the employees. So I got the Pennsylvania legislature to pass a law for stakeholders which includes the employees and the Pennsylvania legislature did this. I mean, I'm not making that one up. The Pennsylvania legislature did it. And, and a number of companies back in the nineties, I would say were able to fend off corporate raids with this gambit. It didn't really catch on because ultimately it's not good for your stock price uh, uh, to do this. This was a, a pretty cynical maneuver by these guys, but so so that was a wave of the stakeholder thing, but the stakeholder thing keeps coming back and back and back. I read an article last week that some one of the judges on the Delaware Supreme Court, and there's only seven of them, I think, uh, which is, is, is the one above the Court of Chancery. So you can appeal your case to the Delaware Supreme Court if you lose in the Court of Chancery. And one of the judges on the Delaware Supreme Court gave a speech or wrote an article supporting the idea of stakeholder interest in the company. And, and it's created a little bit of a kerfuffle uh, because now if, if you don't know where Delaware stands on this, uh, you, then, then all hell's going to break loose. And maybe all hell is going to break loose. I don't know. I, I think the point of the article was Delaware, you better watch out because if you try to go this way, all those and, and probably uh, three or 400 of the Fortune 500 are incorporated in Delaware and they can lose that in the blink of an eye. They'll go to someplace else. So, so that's my disquisition on stakeholder capitalism in the United States. Hmm. And so Biden's home is uh, Delaware, isn't that somewhere in... Uh... 
that neck of the woods. Um, Correct. But any influence there? Is two houses. <laughs> he has a main house in Wilmington, which is the largest city of Delaware, largest city yeah. meaning 100,000 people. The whole population of Delaware is about six or 700,000. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, main house no. in Wilmington and a beach house in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Well. Uh, if I may ask you, I know we've we've taken much of your time uh, today, Francis, pretty much nearing what we said we'd take. I have just noticed this uh, in my Facebook feed that passed this morning. Bloomberg out there in the U.S. has just launched a tool, it says, for mapping a data mapping and materiality assessment tool aimed for investors to assess impact of the uh, any company's business on the United Nations Sustainable Goals and how well they are doing at ESGs. Right. So yeah, and we, you know we have a whole lot of Bloomberg terminals across the world. Investors use them; they they hire it out. Yes, I bet you and do. Yeah. And Mike Mike Bloomberg made a lot of money, and oh, yeah. Mike Bloomberg and the Bloomberg Company were for a long period, maybe still today the largest client of my law firm. And I met Mike Bloomberg and I even been over to his very fancy house right, uh, uh, in, in Manhattan, not, not so far from where I live. And I think he's, I, I think he's a very smart man and a very capable man. man and how he could be so deluded about climate and, and not seem to think it's a problem for him to own 12 houses and four corporate jets to personally jet around while he lectures everybody else on their carbon footprint. I, I can't understand it no. at all. I, 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 I don't get it. I mean, imagine now launching a tool for a company to measure how well they're doing on, I mean, I use these terms analogously. So United well, Nations Sustainable Development Goals and your environmental social governance. They're pretty much the same thing in another wording, but they are forcing everyone to... There's companies who are now being held at ransom by their banks because if you don't comply with X, Y, Z, that's it. I, I, I think Bloomberg is behind the curve on this one. If you're reading the Wall Street Journal for the last week, in mm -hmm. fact, it's not my most recent blog post, but one past has a big chart of the outflows of investment from ESG funds because mm -hmm. all the ESG funds the oil companies have been outperforming everybody. The wind turbine companies <laughs> are all going broke, and they're yep. going to go broke. The solar panel companies are all going broke, and they're all going to go broke. Yeah. Everybody who's in this business is going to go broke. Nobody is ever going to make money on hydrogen. It, it can't be done because hydrogen, it costs 10 times as much to make hydrogen as to make natural gas of the equivalent energy. Nobody can ever do it. It's impossible. And you have to have a 90% subsidy. So thousands of people are out there working on hydrogen and ESG funds are investing in it. And it's, it can't possibly go anywhere. People are completely deluded by their wishful thinking on this, I think. And, but you get bureaucrats even from New Zealand going over, uh, over there. So Bloomberg has a Center for Sustainable Cities in Harvard University. We have had CEOs and mayors of our biggest cities, Wellington, Auckland, and so on, go there for, you know, fully paid by Bloomberg, not on the ratepayer dime, but fully go there for these sojourns, and they come back with these visions, visions of what New Zealand could become. <laughs> and one I, after I the other. I have a simple answer you know. to that. As my simple answer is you first. <laughs> you first. 
I'm not giving up my gas stove. I'm not giving up my gas heat. I'm not giving up my gas dryer. I mean, do you have you have natural gas down there? But you know, like like here in New York City, we have natural gas under all the streets piped into mm-hmm. your house. So you can have a stove with gas. You can have heat with gas. You can have a dryer with gas. All of those work so much better than the electrics yeah. aren't any good but yeah. they tried to spook you i saw those halloween ads about methane what if natural gas the biggest killer it was out on the guardian and others and that ad came out of the u.s scaring kids on halloween give it, you don't want to do it you don't want to be near it give it up i'm okay with that you first and, 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 in new zealand and australia especially australia they are trying to well they're saying no new house builds will have gas uh, yes. reticulated to them they're even trying to stop you having your gas barbecue uh, in australia um <laughs> do uh, you tell an australian he can't cook on the as they call it there the barbie um there's gonna be mayhem <laughs> they need their gas they cook with gas for the so, barbie they don't use uh traditional charcoal you know no, not, not much. Always. We don't use it much. Yeah. <laughs> We're lazy. We love we love our bottled gas. But look, there's so, so much in this space. I, I really we haven't got time to talk about it, but I am uh your daughter has been involved in this heat pump um discussion, and I think you have as well. I'm very concerned about the rollout of heat pumps everywhere as if they're the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, the capital well, cost I, I, of them. I gotta tell you this. She she just sent this to me today, and it's gonna be the subject of my next blog post. So you're getting you're getting a preview. <laughs> Scoop here. Yep. But the New York City Housing Authority, which has 170,000 units, just did a demonstration project on heat pumps that it, it's not actually finished. It's gonna be finished and up and running in December on one building, 159 units. Uh, and they have built a heat pump system for this building to do both the heat and the air conditioning. $28 million. $28 million. $176,000 per unit, which is more than the unit is worth. Oh, my God. <laughs> I look at their demonstration project. It's intriguing, isn't it, how that could happen? I know that in in New York, you will probably use what's called ground source heat pumps. I imagine so that you extract heat out of the the earth. Uh, uh, yeah, it's far smarter than taking atmospheric. Uh, well, heat. you say that, but we're talking about apartment buildings. So the one yeah. I'm talking about on this building, and there's actually a picture of it in the article she sent me. All these heat pumps are outside, sitting on the ground. And oh. they, I'm sure they're. It doesn't say, but I'm sure they're ground source heat pumps. However, it costs 170,000 yeah. a unit. Yeah. And what the article says is, well, we can't really duplicate this for our whole portfolio, which is 175,000 units. So we're going to, our next try is going to be window heat pumps. Well, what's the problem there? Those are air source. And yeah. how uh, are you going to do ground source heat pumps in a 20-story building? You, to do ground source heat pumps, you can't do everybody has their own apartment with a heat yeah. pump because you can't get yeah. to the ground in the yeah. 20th floor. So no, they, they have no solution. They're totally blowing smoke. And it's only a question of how and when it falls apart. Well, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to that. It's interesting. Um, it, I was involved uh, locally with the power company and we have a demonstration home for solar on the east, west and north of the of the roof of this home. And on the dullest, coolest winter's day, it generated 1% of its capacity. And that's in a that's in a, a, a city that doesn't get fogged in that often. It's got a pretty yeah, it's, it can get a bit murky here, but 
one percent. So it's really useful. Big and big return on investment on those days. <laughs> hey, Fra- it, it, it works yeah. fine as long as you have a grid to back it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And we haven't even talked about the FDA and some of the stuff we would really love to have talked really about. This, this, I'll, be, this, I'll come back if you want. This, uh, fantastic. The surveillance state, we're, we're big on all this stuff, Francis. And so, look, yeah, look, we'd love to have you back in the new year. We know that uh, you're obviously a prolific writer and it does take time. None of the stuff is, is five minutes that you do. So we have really, really appreciated getting your time uh, so quickly. Uh, and so, yep, back next year. That you're on the hook for that. Thank you Send very much. Send me an email. I will. Uh, I will be looking for it. Oh, fantastic. Well, you enjoy uh, the rest of the year leading up to Christmas, and and your grandchildren enjoy them the most. They're the best. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you, Francis. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Great to have you back on Reality Check Radio Greenwashed with Jasper Eaton Don. I hope you enjoyed that interview with the Manhattan Contrarian. What a deep thinker he is, and in the last week of even read more of his output and yeah i find him one of my favorites an easy read um very intense but he makes it clear um that all this net zero stuff just yeah we just got to keep our eyes open and how much it's going to cost us it's going to it's going to eat us alive skin us alive as they say jasper completely francis was being too modest he's got a book in there somewhere He's definitely got a book in there with all the copious output he's had over the past nearly a decade of doing this blog. And I'm so glad yeah. we discovered him and he agreed to come on. Well, it was fantastic. I think he was so sort of intrigued that uh, down under there were people reading him. I think uh, that may have been the intrigue. But look, I just implore listeners to not only listen to us and our fellow um, travellers on RCR, but get in, into the uh, internet and search the Manhattan Contrarian because he has a database full of good stuff. Hmm. And it makes you realize when you listen to or read the output of someone from the US and you see them facing, you know, uncannily the exact same issues that we do, you do realize there's a bigger agenda at play here. Yeah. And, and you know, when I was a company director, I was big on um, studying stuff that was happening in New York where he is based. And in that period, uh, there was, co- you know, condominiums, uh, sort of um, apartment buildings that were generating their own electricity, uh, solar panels on their roof and the like, and storing it in batteries and then spreading it out to each each um, unit in the in the apartment building. And they were using blockchain to be the digital ledger. And I thought. Is this the future? Is this where perhaps even uh, a block in downtown Invercargill or any city in New Zealand could say, we're going to go um, and have our own solar systems. We're going to uh, sort of have our own little cooperative uh, in the back gardens of our sections. And it hasn't happened, of course, because no one wants that to happen, do they? They just don't. The sector doesn't want to see um, uh, individuals taking control of their own energy really 
as much as people say they want it, they don't. You know, the electricity sector doesn't want to see that. I'm certainly looking forward to a whole lot of uh, output from Francis and others like him, fellow travellers, after the COP28 brouhaha uh, dies down. But I see from the listener feedback, quite a few have been following what's been happening at COP28. So for those uh, not sure of the lingo, that is the Conference of Parties, that is the United Nations Climate Annual, I don't know, Shindig, Don, this Shindig. year at uh, Dubai. It's it's intriguing. Yeah, they're in Dubai, 70,000 people. I mean, it was on Radio New Zealand, I think, this week that potentially there's 100,000 people there. And I thought, oh, give me a break. Are they hamming this up? But yeah, I've um, I've found out today on research that 84,000 people did register. So, you know, maybe there is somewhere between 70 and 100,000 people there. But interestingly there, they had the old master, the Messiah, Al Gore. And he was talking about the re- the return to 24 hours of reality. And you just, I, I played a few of the videos from, from COP28, you know, the, perhaps they were the, the precursor to it. And they focused a lot on these people wearing badges, not a fossil fuel lobbyist was their ba- what was on their badge. So what's that in retaliation for? Ah, well, effectively. 2,400 of the registrations were from the fossil fuel industry in Dubai. How surprising. But, uh, but you know, it's an inconvenient truth that that's what drives that economy. And there was Al Gore, as I said, the climate climate czar, uh, wrote the yep. book, The Inconvenient Truth, or the, had the movie. Yep, it's all there I... on show. And, of course, we've had our New Zealand... Um, lackeys there as well uh and the output of, from some of them is how we are now the laggards of the world because we're going to be back searching for um oil and gas or is it just gas i don't know but you know how to brand new zealand into a corner you let these people go overseas and they get a bit of airtime, and all of a sudden they're tarnishing the brand of the country by abusing us effectively by selling us out some of the statements you have people making there, the Australian mining magnate, Andrew Forrest, was there. And uh, he's, of course, a key, you know, very passionate climate campaigner. And his uh, statement that their heads uh, of the oil and gas supreme was their heads should be on spikes. Imagine a, you can actually get away with saying stuff like that's whatever happened to this be kind lot. Oh, be kind. Um, and, of course, uh, he's now... Uh, heavily into the hydrogen movement. Though? That's the question. How did oh. Andrew Forrest get there? Oh, he's been in mining. Uh, I think Fortescue Mining is his gig. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now he's big on on hydrogen in Australia. They're pushing that um, that barrow. So, of course, that's going to save the world. Yeah, can't have can't have CO two emissions uh, as as much as ours. So let's have clean burning hydrogen. Only only output from hydrogen is H two O. Good old water. But hey, there's a good feed. There's further feedback. I mean, COP28 did uh, obviously instill a, a, well, excite a few people. So we've, we've got a few talking about uh, how Prince Charles comes out with the, uh, with the statements every time he can. And Rachel gave us some feedback. And then there was uh, someone from, uh, called Kelly who asked us to look uh, at a Dr. Lyons from Adelaide. Uh, we may look at that. Uh, and then, of course, we had a bit of feedback on my comment on 
refrigerants and heat pumps and R32. R32. And we've had we've had some feedback sort of saying, well, it's 674 more times more damaging to the atmosphere than CO2, according to the Daikin website. Well, um, that is, you know, less than what I thought it was. But, you know, they talk about global warming potential. And, of course, um, uh, yeah, they they definitely can't have any of this leaking into the atmosphere from heat pumps. So uh, is there a carbon tax involved in that? Yes, there will be. When you buy that uh, R32, there will be a carbon tax involved. There was somebody, unless I'm mistaken, Don, who recently sent us this feedback that the boss was saying that there is a certain amount of this levy that goes into this. And this, you remember this one? Mm, mm. And this installer said that he was asking his boss, yes. why, does, why isn't that explicitly mentioned in the invoice or something? Yeah, well, it, I, I'm, and I can, I, I've just said I, there will be a carbon tax. I have no proof because I haven't bought the stuff. But I, you know, I have been told it's got very expensive. Now, why would it get very expensive? There has to be some additional taxes on it, I would have thought. Uh, mm. So, look, I perhaps should find that out better. Sorry, I rambled on on no, that. That's all um, good. The other one was um, we talked about LIDAR, and there's a person who's responded saying um, it's not done uh, at low level, it's done at 5,000 feet. Well, I have researched that, and there is different, uh, obviously, techniques but they range mm. from sort of 500 feet, which I think was what was happening outside my window, uh, to 8,000 odd feet. And it depends, I think, on the technology, the strength of the LiDAR gear, I suppose, uh, how low they need to fly. So it's not, he said it's usually done at 5,000 feet. That's probably correct. But um, yeah. yeah, it was certainly much lower here. There is this feedback and uh, there's no name to attribute it to. Hi, Josh Breeton Town. I love uh, <laughs> Everything you present, and especially just breathe, laughing while delivering information with terrible repercussions. I'm sorry, I've always been the bearer of bad news, haven't I? I have to laugh along with her at how ludicrous a lot of the stuff is, and that makes me feel a whole lot better. As for the new government, I share feelings similar to those you expressed at the start of the show. I only have to think of some of the responses and attitude from Seymour and Luxon. I have absolutely no faith how they will protect our freedoms or turn the clock back. I've been surprised at how Boy and some of the other commentators have been. I live in hope and pray I'm wrong. So do I, mate. So do I. I'd be very, very happy to be wrong. And, you know, but there is something to be said uh, about hope, as you yeah, said. That, that's hope true. Something, unless you have something to hope for, to aspire for, what else is there? And I too live in hope. And I, I do believe we will come through on the other side, but there is certainly a bit more pain there. I think you and I are the odd ones out on the RCR um, family, and that's fine. Um, we talk about both sides of the story, well, all sides of the story, and that's fine. We don't have any malice against our co-hosts, of course, or fellow hosts, of course. Um, but we, we, I found a friend the other day, effectively, a different friend, and that's Muriel Newman from um, the Policy Centre. She wrote the same thing as us. We've been talking about at the end analysis, the climate policies aren't what we expected they are still in those coalition agreements like it's business as usual as you and i have been saying so when i read that i thought mm, no she's more change has always been the linchpin of this whole agenda always i mean there's a feedback from someone there who said walk away from cop 28 stuff them new zealand is a flick on the baseline we are generally carbon positive if you count all this year to absorb by plants and that's the point. We know once we start buying to the problem 
and then start sort of saying, no, 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 look, we're carbon positive. I worry which way we are going. We do not, we do not want to play that game. We just completely need to call the hoax out for what it is. Well, call it a hoax. Uh, It's certainly not essential uh, to have this international uh, agenda playing. Yeah, we're we're an open economy. We want to trade our goods and services to the world, and we want to do it without as with as little encumbrances from stuff like this as possible. This doesn't add a damn thing inside the farm gate or inside the businesses of New Zealand. Not a thing, only costs. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's sold like it's going to be a, a massive earner for us uh, by people that don't own anything. Tell me what James Shaw owns. Tell me what Rod Orham owns. They don't own anything but their noise. They need to actually have real investment and real skin in the game. game. And then we might get some common sense. But we're a long way from that, Jasper. Uh, Yep. And I stand corrected. Actually, they found the name. It was Kay who sent that uh, last, the text to us about saying that I deliver, you know, information with terrible repercussions laughing. Thank you, Kay, for texting us. And there was another... um, uh, texter or emailer sort of talking about the emissions out of um, city councils and wastes, uh, waste streams and the like. And look, we're watching that with interest because as as you may know, and um, I'm not going to mention this guy's name again, um, uh, you're a Jasperita all over this in your local council trying to understand what emissions are relative to mm, and important to understand from your waste management systems. Look, as I said, no one wants to see waste streams and inefficient waste stream. Inefficiency is what this all efficiency versus inefficiency is what this is all about. And you don't want to have a waste stream if you can avoid it. But guess what? The reality is there is a waste stream and there is a waste stream that creates um, some gases. What we're going to do about it? I don't know. Don't know. But, you know, the other. We run councils like the, the, the way we run our own household budgets. You know, things well, are pretty different. But right now, it just, my dad always says, it's so easy to spend other people's money. What? So easy. Yeah, and, and Margaret Thatcher, what did she say? It's something, uh, it's all fine being a socialist until you run out of other people's money. Uh, something mm-hmm. worse, worse that effect. But, you know, I've been listening to New Zealand radio this week, and it seems that the big cities, if not even the smaller councils, are all talking double-digit uh, rate increases next year. I mean, um, I f- yep. I find it an absolute obscenity that they're not putting the brakes on, and that central government hasn't said you you just can't keep going the way you're going. As neither can central government costs. The only way out of this bind that New Zealand is in right now is to lower the cost of government, lower the cost of local government, and let businesses and and homeowners get on with um, the stuff that we do best, which is yeah, as I said, producing stuff generally, good stuff for yeah. an economy. Now, I've just I've been going well, as an example. I've been going in a road to Invercargill City for my sixty-six years, and it has been bitumen all the way from what I call the Waimatua Corner since I was a kid. It is in the worst condition it has ever been in. From what's called the Tisbury Corner, or just before it, into South and Chicago, is the worst I have ever seen it. And I'm not making that up. Um, it 
it's like a goat track. So, you know, what's local government doing? What are they doing? They're in all manner of things, but the core infrastructure and the core infrastructure, uh, like roading, they don't seem to be getting value out of their contractors. They do jobs that within a day, there's a pothole back. And they say, oh, but if we did it to a certain standard, you wouldn't be able to afford it. Well, there's something seriously wrong here. And I'd imagine that is nationwide. Yeah, we might just all need a Waka, Dr. Waka Kutahi renaming, you know, NZTA renaming itself and navigating these treacherous waters, pun completely intended. Now, uh, we have a few minutes, John, but before we move on to the next topic, we do want to cover today. I'll read out a couple of other texts out here. Uh, another excellent greenwash show, clarity of expression from Don and Josh Freed. Oh, so welcome. Thank you. The institutions and politicians bleed the taxpayers constantly without providing valuable services. Oh, boy, do we agree there. Yeah. And then Julian wrote in, local government is the only thing that has power to stand in the way of central government. And I agree, Julian. I, Jill and I, when we were, you know, talking about local body elections uh, nearly two years ago now, gosh, time flies when you're having fun. We always said that, you know, we get so distracted by center government elections. And I have always cynical me has always just found them a change of guard that if you want to look after your own hood make sure your representatives in your local government who live work talk walk in your communities they are answerable to you they you know are responsive and you may keep them accountable well i took that comment from julian slightly different to you where he says okay. local government is the only thing that has the power to stand in the way of central government. They never do. Your councils never, never do. And they always argue that they have this devolved responsibility from central government, but they've never said, we don't want to do it because, you know, it grows the remit. It grows the the spend. It grows the regime. Every CEO, every council wants to be bigger than the next guy. And Mm. when I hear a council saying to central government, no, nah, we're just not doing it. Yeah, that's that's what I need to hear. And I'm not hearing it from yeah. one council, this whole country. And I've never heard it from any council in my 30 plus years of input to local authorities. Gotcha. Yeah, never heard sad. that. But I've always heard this but argument, this unfunded also, mandate. Is that also sort of a reflection of how disenchanted people are with, you know, councils in general? Yeah, I... Well, we've we just sort of taken our hands off the wheel. Barely thirty percent of the people vote, and all no. of that just add up. Most ratepayers, and let alone the voters at local government, don't have a clue uh, what local government's actually doing for them, and all the peripheral, non-essential stuff that is the costly stuff. Um, I don't believe economic development agencies, for instance, have a place anymore. They never had a place. Uh, because as I talked about last week, they don't give me a share certificate to tell you the val- tell me the value of their output. Never do you get anything to value their output. So anyway. We've got a few minutes left, and Don and I did want to talk today about immigration. Mm. Immigration. Well, and we seem to have uh, hit the jackpot amongst the OECD countries, John, haven't we? Well, we made a comment that we're one of the, gr- you know, relative to the size of our population we're one of the fastest growing populations in the world and Mm -hmm. we are thanks to 
annual migration. And of course, when we started the show in March, I think it was, we were looking at migration, net migration of around, I think from memory, 70 odd thousand. I have 69,000 in my head. Yep. Well, lis- listeners, we can now talk the net migration till the end of September is 118,000 to 122,000. Yep. Um, unbelievably double pretty much what we were told six months ago. So what's that look like? Well, apparently it looks like half have gone to Auckland and the rest have been dispersed around New Zealand. So that's the population of an Invercargill in Auckland. So you think of the infrastructure of a city like Invercargill. I don't know how many schools it's got. It's probably got eight or ten big schools. Um, you think of a hospital requirement. You think of uh, the the roading and, and sort of infrastructure you need. And that's gone into Auckland. And, of course, there's pressure gone all around the rest of the country. Well, who's not resisting that? I mean, I, I'm not resisting it. I, 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 it's, it's, we seem to have an open door sort of policy. But the people that are making the most out of this are the property developers and speculators. I mean, it's just a panacea for these people. It, it is. And infrastructure is not keeping up. Hmm. I now know of multiple people, including myself, who've come from India, who are absolutely shocked at the state of the health system. Mm. completely. I mean, my first-hand experience, I've often spoken about uh, two days in ED to get my daughter's broken arm seen to Injan, but there's similar experiences happening across the country, whereas people in India are used to, you know, if you can pay, just waltz up to any doctor. Mm. Whereas out here, as a friend of mine remarked, she says, what sort of crazy country is this? You can get a wet 24-7 I can't get my child seen to? Mm. Yeah, it's not not great, but seasonally adjusted migrant arrivals and departures monthly from January 2001 to September 2023. They were tracking along fine and dandy till April 2020, or or, yeah, perhaps February 2019, actually, but just pre-COVID. They peaked a little bit, then they dropped right off. But right now we are ahead by a country mile of any time in the past 20 years for our migrant arrivals and departures. And of course, who's leaving New Zealand? Mostly New Zealanders. It's yeah. Incredible. And one would think, why would New Zealand be so attractive? And again, I can just speak for myself. We came out here to just farm. That's all we've done in the last 15 years. Farming. On our third job in 15 years. Uh but New Zealand is a tiny country, the bottom of the world. Most people who are coming, you know, people migrate to places in Europe. I know people who think I'm mad out here. It's four, at worst, or three connections to get to India if in, if I'm in a hurry. And I had to make a mercy dash when dad was ill a few years ago. It was crazy. People like where there's, you know, more convenient connections. The housing is not that great. Everything is really expensive. And yet there's a huge number coming here. Our infrastructure is not keeping... Uh, up but you know what's keeping up the diversity agenda has been kept up (laughs) and there is a ministry of ethnic communities there which i don't know how many people have actually taken the time listeners to go to their website which is www.ethniccommunities.govt.nz and had a look at them what uh, what's going on they now have an ethnic not now it's been on actually for a few years they have an ethnic communities graduate program to provide a meaningful first employment opportunity in the public service 
for people from the ethnic communities to address directly the low representation of ethnic, ethnically diverse employees. Wow. So is this something like we've had so many people say, you know, we don't want white New Zealanders saying uh, the child welfare agency or X, Y, Z, wherever, because it has to be Maori only can do right by Maori and so on. And now with these sort of numbers coming in, are we going to have a state where, say, if a vast majority are Indians, they're going to start saying, no, I need to have an Indian a face in MSD, only then can I go in for something. Or I need an Indian liaison person there, only then can I get something done. Because I've never understood how diversity means just having a particular face there. I have always thought diversity is diversity of thought is of thought or opinion. Are you actually telling me that Don, you in your mid-60s, as a white male, you think exactly the same as all other white males in the mid sixties. Because I, uh, I, you know, if I know you, I know them all. Is that what diversity is? So we can't have, you know, a board comprising of, uh, say, a vast majority of white middle-aged New Zealanders, because you will all be thinking alike. What are your thoughts? You've been a company uh, director. Yeah, Did you no. all think alike? The ones that look like you, Tom? Hell no. <laughs> But we didn't scrap in public. If we had to have a scrap, it was around the board table. But um, no, we did. That was the whole thing about boards. Generally, you do have diversity of thought. You don't have to have it mandated. The thing about everything you're talking about uh, about this separate uh, sort of special treatment, it's the culture setting. It is the worst culture possible where you do encourage um, separate separate identity. Um, through through a, a regulated system or you know a system of privilege, it's just nonsense. Um, that's why we have uh, should have a colorblind society. It should just be absolutely colorblind. Yeah, uh, yeah. So look, I know it's a big topic. The Ministry and, and, of Ethnic Diversity, uh, Ethnic Communities is doing this. They have <laughs> now a full database, and they say they have a list of nearly what over one hundred and fifty different. Uh, boards and committees where they say they'll be recommending people. So we might just come to a state where we don't just have a two-color ethnicity, you know, based healthcare system. We might be having all colors of the rainbow here. Who would know? Well, look, if there's any common sense going to come out of this this coalition, all this is going to be trashed. So hopefully soon. I mean, it, it makes no sense to me, but um, you're the watchdog, Jasper. I think all our listeners should be really pleased we've got someone like you looking at this stuff all the time and you know when you came up with that database of sort of 15 1600 different uh handouts to different ethnic groups uh i think most new zealanders would be aghast that that is happening i've just looked they've updated the october one now don i mean one particular one sticks out new zealand refugee youth council incorporated partially funded the amount given is twenty five thousand in october project name Empowering youth in smaller regions for holistic well-being and social inclusion. How will you justify this $25,000 of taxpayer money as well spent here? They have given two lots, and I'm a Punjabi, so I'm a Sikh, and I belong to the area uh, of India, North India, or Punjab, tiny province on the Indo-Pakistan border. The Wellington Punjabi Women's Association has got lots of $55,000, two lots, $10,000, Diwali celebration with 
Babu Man. If you're a Punjabi, you would know this. This is a Punjabi pop singer, Babu Man. So was flown in possibly to Wellington to celebrate Diwali and the New Zealand taxpayer paid for him. How does that make you feel? It doesn't make me feel good. And, I'm, I'm, you know, this is not what taxpayer money should be spent on. I would rather it go to a hospital where I don't have to wait 48 hours in ED and to have my daughter or any other child, not just my daughter, any other child seen to. But, hey, that's just me. That's the way I think. You may think differently. But uh, so with <laughs> immigration is going to come all of this. And are we ready for this and what this brings? I think. Well, I think no, not. Well, I think not too. And Australia's facing it. Uh, there's plenty of other countries facing it. And um, as I said, there are people that are embracing it because they benefit from it. Uh, and they are, you know, air infrastructure providers, housing, plumbers, electricians, builders. They love all this stuff. They're not going to be putting their hand up and saying they want to challenge what you're saying, Jaspreet. But there is some common sense required here, um, and we it's seem a long way off. Predictable, isn't it, John? Follow the money. Follow the yeah. money. But anyway, I think we have to wrap because we're almost out of time for this week's show. So um, we'll be back next week. Thanks for all your um, kind feedback and comments to us over the past few weeks, and we'll be back next week with another show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you have a great Monday, whatever you do. 2057 is a number or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.